This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive. Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today on the Alwara Frequency, uh, we're going to take a, uh, we're going to take a look into something that I've been pretty excited about for a while, something we mentioned before, um, a vector of approaching conspiracies that, um, kind of stands apart in all kinds of ways. Um, yeah, certainly and, a very singular uh, sort of line of inquiry. Uh, and it, yeah, very uh, And unique there are many subjects. lines and, yeah. s- and circles. And I guess a and unique individual. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. And um, as we're going to see, this, uh, this interlocks with a bunch of stuff that we've already covered. Um, most of it i would say having to do with the vast iran contra enterprise yeah and it's also kind of yeah in addition to that i was saying just before like uh this is part of what makes this unique uh as a topic is that it kind of is both uh something that deals with a lot of the iran contra themes that that we've been talking about and in those episodes some of the same like networks uh but mm-hmm. it also, like, as a foray, like, into the art world as well. Like, yes. in the conceptual art type. It has connections with some of, like, the Josh Harris, uh, some of the Kenneth Anger uh, stuff, like, uh, in that it's uh, also sort of an art topic. Uh, yes, absolutely. But probably our first foray into something that, like, is really centrally situated in the modern art world. Um, yeah, Which definitely. is just such a such an interesting nest of susness. In, yeah, it is know. super interesting. And it's interesting how, you know... So, anyway, our episode is about Mark Lombardi, a uh, conceptual artist, uh, yes. who is known for his uh, artworks that basically are... It's, it's difficult to describe, really. I think that it's, it's interesting to kind of talk about the sort of lineage of, of some of his work. Like, uh, in he referred to them almost as, like, narrative structures. Really what they are, basically, is just drawings of interlocks, which are, like, uh, connections between uh, 
to well, there's like a, a really uh, strict definition of what yes. uh, they, they are. They, they're a search tool that's used like an accounting, really. Yeah, they're a forensic um, accounting tool that is primarily used. Uh, it was most often used in antitrust investigations yes. uh, to basically trace the overlapping relationships of various boards of directors and different corporations and yes. institutions. Yeah, a simple way uh, to think about it is that, uh, you know, a direct interlock, uh, this is quoting uh, from Patricia Goldstone, who wrote a book about this artist, uh, which is called Interlock, Art, Conspiracy, and the Shadow Worlds of Mark Lombardi. Um, And uh, she summarizes that a direct interlock exists between two companies when one person serves on the boards of both, and an indirect one when members from their board serve together on the board of a third company. The best examples of interlocks, direct and indirect, can be found between the five American members of the oil oil cartels and the seven biggest American banks in the 1980s, a favorite area of Lombardi's research. So he would basically create these very, actually, like, aesthetically beautiful, um, Mm -hmm. especially to, you know, people who have that kind of organizational, maybe INTP type (laughs) mind. Um, You know, uh, he has these very, like, uh, geometrically uh, pleasing... Uh, French arcs kind of yes. connecting these different nodes in the interlocks um, and a very simple kind of a, or elegant uh, legend for the different uh, lines that, that he draws, uh, you know, to, yes. to illustrate different types of connections. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, basically he would map these out, uh, the, these connections in this, in this sort of aesthetically pleasing way and these, in these massive webs, you know, uh, yeah. On there, large sheets the kind of paper. Of yeah, they're kind of like an aestheticized version of like a conspiracy theory like chart, you know, like mm-hmm. something that you would imagine like some crazy like conspiracist like drawing on the wall. Of like the like, it's always sunny meme. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it is Charlie yeah. in front of the wall. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But exactly. This is so much cleaner. It's like a hyper aestheticized version of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And yeah. Um, and, and, and the uh, simplicity yeah. kind of evokes so much because, of course, he's sort of introducing this, like, not in the context of a lawsuit or a financial investigation, but putting it on a wall in a museum or a gallery. And there is no other explanation provided for the names and the companies that are, you know, uh, that are the nodes on these interlock charts. And, uh, and, that created kind of no small amount of mystique around him though i mean we'll, we'll talk a, a little bit about kind of the biography of him but um he really did kind of stand alone as somebody who um yeah kind of merged the these different worlds together and made i would say kind of politically charged art that wasn't just like a statement or something or you know what I mean? I mean, even though some people did interpret uh, his his art basically as kind of uh, like a postmodern statement and commented on sort of its like its inherent um, uh, inaccessibility. Um, but I, I'll just read a, a little tiny bit from the interlock book here that like addresses that to kind of set the stage. Um, and this is a passage I, I would say I agree with. We might disagree on other little parts of the book. Okay. But, um, th- this I generally, um, I agree with this take on his work. 
so she writes, Denizens of the art world, like Robert Hobbes or Lawrence Rinder, suggest that Mark Lombardi's work ultimately falls short of its revelatory aspirations, that his drawings are, quote, beautiful but superficial, abstract synecdoches for the missing events they signify but cannot adequately represent, and or, quote, rhizomatic. As we have seen, in philosophy, a rhizome is a non- or even anti-narrative construct that presents history and culture as a map or as a wide array of attractions or influences with no specific genesis. But Lombardi's work has a beginning, if not in our lifetimes, an end. Uh, far from being deliberately ambiguous or intentionally obscure, as his critics and dealers sometimes infer, it is in fact highly representational as well as narrative. It is both a continual visual history of the development of the world's shadow banking system following the end of the Second World War, and, eventually and coincidentally, of the evolution of a shadowy worldwide web of private intelligence and military firms and Cold War funding sources which coalesced in Oliver North's enterprise. To suggest that the artist deliberately limited what he drew seems a misperception, given the evidence of the third damaged BCCI drawing and his oft-repeated comment quote, you could hang the truth on a wall for everyone to see, and most people won't give a damn. So yeah, I would, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I would agree with that as well. I think this, the point about the Luz is especially interesting, or uh, especially trenchant, because it's also one of my pet peeves about the Luz is the whole rhizome thing. It's mm-hmm. just, like, gotten so much play, and everyone just loves it for some reason. But I feel like this binary between uh, maybe like some Deleuzeans are going to come after me for for saying this, but I'm just going to say (laughs) the whole binary that he sets up between trees and rhizomes is dumb because all trees are roots. All trees have rhizomes as part of them. So to Mm. say like a tree is like, you know, a linear narrative structure, whereas a rhizome is like zigzag, like it's stupid. But anyway, so I appreciate (laughs) that kind of dig or, you know, that... uh, uh, slight subversion of that uh, Deleuzian uh, thing and like you know yeah uh, whatever but anyway yeah, uh, yeah I think yeah. that they definitely are narrative in a way and in fact uh, it, one thing that uh, Goldstone brings out in her biography of, of him I think that the strongest part of her book is the earlier half which kind of deals with his actual biography and then like her reading of some of the works uh, you know while uh, workmanlike and good in some ways like you know I feel like it's, it's uh, not as uh, strong maybe but uh, the uh, or not as uh, gripping or, or interesting you know not to say mm. that it's, it's poorly done but um, you know uh, she brings out that he one of his early products that kind of got attention uh, for him from uh, his mentor uh, who he had like a very uh, sort of uh, fraught relationship with this guy uh, Jim Harathas who was like a big figure in the world of like you know left-wing conceptual art he did a project on Mm -hmm. like panoramas uh panoramic painting uh, and he was big into that like you know uh the old sort of uh, vogue for like historical panoramas like the uh, the soon panorama um Mm -hmm. in uh i guess it's in switzerland and things like that so it's like the it's it's interesting uh he has some some quotes there's a book uh that collects some of his paintings um and, uh, yeah, he, uh, he writes, uh, well, I'll, I'll read the paragraph, uh, and his quote. Although Mark Lombardi held the conceptually based art of Heike and Mata Clark in high esteem, his mature work, a series of drawings begun in 1994 and continuing until his death, which he called narrative structures, so, you know, he even called them narrative structures, but is both more conservative and more advanced than theirs. Since he intended to update history painting in terms of theories of globalism and rhizomic schematizations of power. In these works, mm. he replaces the taproot theory 
crucial to history painting, that great individuals are the initiators of important events, with a new model based on less centralized, more serendipitous channels of power. He presents this new type of power as arising from ongoing and seemingly fortuitous constellations of often high-profile individuals, some of whom are perpetrators of crimes, while others are simply contacts who may or may not be guilty of wrongdoing. Lombardi's works reveal this global community as consisting of small enclaves of individuals that circulate either knowingly or unknowingly around some of the most corrupt supernatural financial transactions of the 20th century. Lombardi accepted many of the basic rules governing history painting, but his own work was diametrically opposed to the closure to which such grand peintres in the West aspired. Uh, in a self-interview dealing with his long-term interest in history, he wrote, Reading history has always been one of my main pursuits. History as navigation, reportage, journalism. I also see this work as an offshoot of a lineage that goes back first to history painting. It is all the sweep and expanse, the drama and monumentality one might ordinarily associate with battle paintings or depictions of other significant historical events. But it goes back much farther than that. The first storytellers no doubt augmented their tales with diagrams and pictographs drawn on the sand. Um, so, mm. uh, yeah, so it's an interesting kind of uh, evolution, maybe, or uh, abstraction of the history painting or this sort of uh, conventional modes of history painting of maybe things like panorama uh, to this, you know, almost yeah, geometric uh, conceptual. And, and just the, yeah. the, the naked power structures at play, yeah. um, almost like putting on <clears throat> like uh, like Marxist they live glasses uh, to a certain degree though though the Mark Lombardi was not a Marxist but in the sense of seeing getting some lens through which to uh, perceive the invisible power movements at play behind uh, these you know huge forces in the economy yeah I mean he originally like did kind of you know he was an artist by training you know he uh went to school for art at syracuse uh although he originally had kind of wanted to put some of these things into a book um which i guess was a little bit of a mess according to Patricia goldstone uh mm -hmm. but you know i think that uh he found a better way maybe to express the information uh through this and yeah it's it's a very interesting thing the whole like conceptual art uh, aspect to it because yeah and like you know he was exhibited at the MoMA you know shortly before his death like at PS1 which we were talking about you know uh, the same uh, uh, museum run by the uh, the Josh Harris lady of uh, you know there must be a pod for me you know mm -hmm. that we live yep. in public yep. um, in fact probably around the same time of uh, you know her uh, curatorship there if not uh, exactly at the same time but uh, quite yeah, possible quite possible yeah he was just hitting he he hit his hot streak a little bit later in life when he was in his 40s but it was really the late 90s when he had moved to Williamsburg Brooklyn uh, that he started to become kind of a uh, cause celeb in the New York art world yeah and it's interesting because you know uh, yeah Dimitri was saying earlier that you know he's optimistic this would be a short episode but I was a little bit uh, you know uh, less optimistic because I feel like another wrinkle this in addition to the art aspect and the kind of Iran-Contra uh, conspiracy network aspect and the financial uh, sort of web, uh, the actual financial web to be documented in their interest. There's mm -hmm. also kind of like a meta uh, conspiratorial like uh, interest uh, or a meta conspiracy theoretical uh, aspect to this because there's, you know, uh, Patricia Goldstone talks, I think, you know, very observantly about the... Uh, the evolution of art like away from 
figural art, you know, towards abstract and conceptual art. And she even talks about, yes. you know, the influence of the CIA and that. Yeah. And yeah. Like, I actually, uh, I, I, I just, um, I just brought up the passage in that book where she kind of sets the stage for like the art world that, um, you know, sets the stage for the creation of conceptual art and uh, the world Mark Lombardi would kind of grow up into. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I thought I'd, I'd read that to kind of set the, uh, <clears throat> yeah. maybe the meta conspiracy background uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to give people yeah. ideas. So, for sure. as I said before, um, uh, Mark Lombardi had remarked to his friend before, Andy Feehan, that he could put the truth up on a wall for everyone to see and no one would, quote, give much of a shit because it was only art. The abstract expressionists, whom he admired greatly, were the exceptions to that rule. Perversely, many members of the art elite in 1950s America considered the CIA better critics than the critical establishment because the agency took modernism's power seriously, albeit for propaganda purposes. Soviet-inspired American painting in the 1930s had been dominated by social realism, a Soviet-inspired school of protest that found fertile soil in the America of the Great Depression. Even Nelson Rockefeller commissioned works from the great leftist muralist David Sikeros, who, in whose atelier Pollock studied, um, and Diego Rivera, whose commission, alas, uh, Rockefeller abruptly terminated when the artist refused to remove a portrait of Lenin from oh, the walls yeah. of Rockefeller Center. When the McCarthy era came in with the George Denderos of the world riding its coattails, the elite of the American art world went to the CIA for help in preventing them from reinforcing the impression in Europe that America was a cultural wasteland. The CIA began financing and promoting abstract expressionists through its International Organizations Division, through its long-standing liaisons with the Museum of Modern Art, nicknamed Mommy's Museum by Nelson Rockefeller for its founder, Abby Aldrich Rockefeller, who believed with some justification that patronage would silence the more discordant tones of left-wing artists, the Whitney Museum, and private venture capital such as William H. Jackson, a polo-playing friend of MoMA trustee Jock Whitney's, who also happened to be deputy director of the CIA. Tom Braden, founding chief of the International Organizations Division, became an executive secretary of the Museum of Modern Art. As we shall see, in an odd nod to the Cold War, the MoMA and the Whitney both acquired large holdings of Lombardi's work shortly after his death. Because abstraction was non-figurative, the agency believed it to be apolitical and therefore safe, with a message that could only be perceived by insiders, an idea Lombardi apparently appropriated. And perhaps it perceived an opportunity for profit, too, in breaking the dominance of the European art market. Its belief in abstract expressionism was a passionate one that may have had as much to do with the CIA's affinity toward the two-fisted, hard-drinking Hemingway cowboy culture cultivated by the group as it had to do with what they put on canvas. In the 1960s, the lair of the abstract expressionist was invaded by Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein. The slick, flat surfaces and hard edges of pop art replaced the viscous drips of the unconscious, just as the bright lights of Max's Kansas City replaced the masculine recesses of the Cedar Tavern. Painting, declared Mark's surrogate father figure Jim Harithus, was dead, killed by Madison Avenue in a culture that no longer made things but consumed them. The worst was yet to come. In 1964, artist Saul LeWitt defined a new movement, conceptual art, as art in which the idea or concept is the most important part of the work, the machine that makes the art, and execution a secondary, if not an entirely perfunctory affair. Conceptual art did away with the messy, centered, intentional eye that had been around for eons, uh, that had been for eons the source and guarantee of artistic meeting. 
and the voice of the abstract expressionist Rohr, by adopting an external predetermined, quote, program, very much resembling a computer program, and eliminating the, quote, arbitrary, capricious, and subjective as much as possible, artists like LeWitt, Lawrence Wiener, Douglas Hubler, and Joseph Kosuth disrupted the conventional idealization of artist as that person who, on basis of a craftsman-like maintenance of traditional skills, emblematized the unity of psyche, society, and culture based on the synthesis of physical, mental, and spiritual work. Instead of a Hemingway-esque, in-the-moment reporter of the visual, the artist became an academic who, by documenting the mental labor of his own artistic development, validated the final design or thesis. Moreover, he or she was expected to behave like any other young professional, not like a shaggy, shagging, shambolic old bohemian. Um, And though it claimed an elaborate genealogy with roots in the Dada and Fluxus movements, in the inimitable anarchism of Marcel Duchamp and George Grosch, The problem with conceptual art was, as LeWitt himself observed, that anyone could make it using an exact set of instructions. If anyone could make it, then it destroyed its own store of value as art, i.e. its uniqueness. Perhaps to compensate for this dilution of the art brand, a new breed of entrepreneurial dealers, in collaboration with their artists, began creating unique value out of public relations. Joseph Kosuth, on whom Mark Lombardi modeled himself and his aspirations to writerly as well as physical expression, Uh, visual expression, was a shrewd self-promoter who astutely recognized that advanced information, i.e. publicity conveyed through media reputation, name recognition, public persona, could supplant information previously conveyed through criticism. In other words, the artist's, quote, story was about to become an essential part of his art. Undoubtedly attractive to the fame-hungry young Lombardi, Kosuth has achieved stardom in his early 20s, partly due to his own ferocious ambition and appetite uh, for hard work. The full reach of his ambitions, however, was only achieved through a McLuhan-esque collaboration with his dealer, the maverick, quote, um, entrepreneur, the description (laughs) is Kosuth's, Seth Seglob. Um, And, uh, yeah, and also this is interesting that they say... uh, it is no coincidence that conceptual art emerged along with the stock market bubble. At the same time that financial speculation became accessible to everyone through such vehicles as Bernie Kornfeld's Investors Overseas Service, the subject of one of Mark Lombardi's later drawings, it permeated every facet of the art market. Newsweek observed how the artist had become a supplier of commodities in the exchange of fashionable goods. A new species of investors, and not a few savvy collectors, discovered that contemporary art, which could be purchased at bargain prices because of its obscurity had enormous potential for profit. In fact, the more obscure, the better. The new investors who made their money trading increasingly arcane financial instruments were comfortable wearing the emperor's new clothes. As Alexander Albero puts it in his History of the Conceptual Art Movement, experimental art was hip, and because of its inherently tenuous character, the contemporary art world provided a space for the ambitious newly rich to locate themselves on the social ladder. Unlike the nouveau riche of the Gilded Age and the Roaring Twenties, who were happy to advance their social education through acquiring the tastes and traditions of European art, this new market had no patience with the past. It was made up for the most part of newly affluent, 
highly trained technocrats. They were comfortable with the language of advertising and of information, with the image of the artist as a young professional rather than a bohemian. The art world accommodated itself to their needs in an increasingly symbiotic relationship that foreshadowed the internet age in which Mark Lombardi was to become a star. Quote, many in the multinational corporate world of the 1960s imagined ambitious art not as an, not as an enemy to be undermined or a threat to consumer culture, but as a symbolic ally. Providing services and manipulating information became the heart of this new economic paradigm. Termed informatization, the emergence of conceptual art is closely related to this new moment in advanced capitalism. The decline of the stock market by the late 1960s put a temporary damper on conceptual art along with the Madison Avenue-inspired pop art movement, of which it was then a a subset. But conceptualism remained uniquely adapted to the evolution of the information age, where, as we shall see, Lombardi is living a busy afterlife. Its doctrines were to prove fatally attractive to the young artist with a deficiency in execution skills, a tendency to overcompensate verbally, and perhaps an already fragile sense of I. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, yeah, there's a lot of uh, really interesting stuff there. And I think that that's like a super, uh, you know, uh, like, you know, uh, compelling analysis of uh, this, uh, you know, uh, art movement of, of conceptual art and of mm-hmm. the, uh, it situates Mark Lombardi very interestingly in it. I think another like interesting wrinkle is you kind of mentioned the sort of Hemingway-esque uh, persona of Pollock and also how... Uh, with the rise of conceptual art and of experimental art, uh, part of the appeal of an artist was the persona, you know, was the mm-hmm. kind of identity of the artist uh, and the the sort of process of the artist was part of uh, what was, uh, what it gave the, the value to, to the piece of art. Uh, I mean, I feel like this dovetails interestingly with uh, some of our earlier conversations about commodity fetishism and things like that. I mean, this mm-hmm. is what people always think of when they think of like uh, Duchamp's, you know, like uh, his his fountain and stuff like that, you know, like uh, the whole idea of like uh, yeah. putting something and, in an art context and changing and, its, its meaning, you know. Yeah. And, and just as a side, I heard recently that uh, the even the, the thing with Marcel Duchamp and his like his toilet urinal thing mm-hmm. was was to some degree... Um, I guess maybe it's commonly misunderstood today that he was trying to make a statement. Basically, I guess the real story with that is that a gallery was off, was basically selling space to any artist could pay to have their work exhibited. So he mm-hmm. took, he thought that was ridiculous and like a, he wanted to sort of like troll them and crit- critique that transactional approach to like curation. So he purchased a space and put a urinal there. But then mm-hmm. every and then it like blew everybody's minds. But then everyone realized that, oh, that actually could be art. And it kind of it opened like Pandora's box in a kind of way. I mean, I think, you know, eventually uh, I don't know how Duchamp uh, I think maybe sort of embraced it later on in life and started like, you yeah. know, making well, tons I mean, of I toilets everywhere. Actually, but. before that, he had done ready maids like uh, that's what he called them. It was his ready maids. Um, and he had like another one called Bottle Rack. That I think mm-hmm. was maybe uh, that might have been the first, or at least it's the first famous one, um, which is sort of similar, you know. I think the whole, uh, but the thing is, like, you know, uh, this is a problem, and I think that uh, there's a good essay by uh, which kind of deals with some of the uh, problems that uh, Goldstone brought up in in that, you know, like if anyone can do it, you know, uh, why, like, what, you know, this is a, a threat to art in some way. And, uh, there's mm-hmm. a, it's called the art, uh, the work of art in an age of mechanical reproduction, uh, by Benjamin. 
Oh um, yeah, which kind yeah. of deals with this, yeah, um, and the the value of art as transformation and kind of a, an industrial, uh, you know, uh, environment. But uh, yeah, I think uh, you know it was kind of in a way bound to happen, like because of like uh, material, uh, environmental, institutional factors. This is like how art is naturally going to transform. It's kind of like how uh, people always complain, like. Uh, the decline of art you know like they don't make paintings that are realistic anymore it's like well you know when that started to happen there was this you know invention that had uh, come about you know uh, i wonder what the reason could possibly be that artists would lose interest in making like photorealistic paintings mm. uh you know maybe because like that could be done with photography in mm-hmm. you know the 19th century like uh so it's uh yeah like these things uh i think are, are natural developments of like artistic exploration and uh you know i i like uh, i'm i'm not necessarily like an artistic uh reactionary in that way where like uh i you know am uh you know uh, against uh i mean you know i'm obviously uh being muslim anti-figurative art uh period <laughs> but uh no sure. but uh anyway uh but uh, no, no, no. But yeah, like, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm not really like uh, partial to the whole like the generation of true art like thing. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, and it's also kind of something that I think is is bound to happen and part of this kind of uh, searching uh, spirit and this uh, aspect of you know, and of course there's uh, a cultural, institutional, um, historical, socio historical factors that uh, you know, uh, govern this, but I think, uh, Goldstone's sort of, uh, summary of, of Lombardi's role and all that does a good job of, of expressing, but yeah, I, I was mm-hmm. going to say that I think, uh, something that's interesting in light of, uh, this kind of transformation where the persona of the artist starts to play such a big role in the, uh, value of art, uh, that what Lombardi, and of course, you know, uh, something that I think we'll talk about is his mysterious death, uh, you know, yes. he, he died, you know, he committed, uh, he well, quote unquote suicide under, <laughs> under mysterious circumstances. Uh, you know, it's an ambiguous thing where a lot of people speculate that he was in fact murdered. Uh, yes. but that of course is like part of his mystique, you know, part of his appeal. And I think that's really interesting in that, you know, uh, an, in- an interesting part of Goldstone's book is when she kind of, uh, you know, like, uh, in the sort of more biography based portion of the book. She talks about his experience at Syracuse under this guy, Jim Harithos, who is, mm-hmm. uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but whatever. Yeah, I think like, it is uh, Harithos. Yeah. yeah, so uh, he was, and this is something that I think anyone who's been to, like, any kind of MFA program or any kind of, like, grad school probably in general uh, can maybe relate to the sort of setup that was going on where uh, this guy... Harithos, uh, he was, like, you know, a very outspoken, like, left-wing dude, you know, like, a radical guy, but he was also, like, a super plugged-in insider. I'll just read what Mm -hmm. Goldstone says about it, why not? Uh, So, yeah, it was dangerous to be overly impressionable in Jim Harithos's aura. She's saying that Lombardi was uh, overly impressionable. To fly Mm -hmm. too close to the sun. Harithos, as his ex-students like to call him, might be the, quote, ultimate outlier, as Ross put it. Too much of a firebrand, too, quote, unrelenting for the art establishment to fully embrace. Yet he is also, paradoxically, the ultimate insider, incredibly plugged in in any number of ways. The quintessential anti-establishment establishment figure, Harithos grew up in a highly placed U.S. military family who had him educated at the Swiss boarding school for the ruling class uh, <laughs> Institute Montana, where John yeah. Kerry also matriculated. He has artfully concealed this pedigree for most of his life, but one reason why he is so successful at breaking the rules is that he knows them all by heart. 
He is married to one of the wealthiest women in Texas, if not the world, the redoubtable artist, oil heiress, and cattle rancher Ann O'Connor Robinson, with whom he established the Art Car and Station Museum after, as we shall see, a highly publicized brawl occasioned his ouster as the ouster as the director of Houston's prestigious contemporary art museum. Mm-hmm. Perhaps his affinity for fistfights is a means of ducking any accusation that he is a, quote, privileged, happy-ass kid from Old Line, Maine. Uh, there is no shortage of rumor in the art world, and people like to imply that Harithas, who also worked in army intelligence in 1950s oh, Algeria, just in Algeria, had, yeah, uh, just might have had some advantageous connection to the CIA's International Organizations Division and his promotion of abstract expressionists after the war. He is certainly never less than a wily and enduring player of the art game, and even his insistence on authenticity is sometimes another form of the Singlaubian artist story. Uh, you know, referencing exactly what you just uh, read. Even those like David Ross or Paul Schimmel, who know the rules of Herathos's world very well, have trouble distinguishing his ethos from his true guiding beliefs or principles from his, or sorry, his true guiding beliefs or principles from his mythos, his guiding beliefs or principles as transmitted through the myths surrounding him. To an impressionable young man like Mark Lombardi, with no background or experience, the distinction would prove bewildering. And I think that that is, like, really a very... Uh, you know, I think that maybe there are people who can relate to, to that with this sort of this toxic, uh, hierarchical, like patriarchal setup in these kind mm-hmm. of like, especially like art uh, environments with these, uh, you know, uh, these sort of figures who you're like kind of scrambling to impress as, as Mark Lombardi was kind of against people who were, you know, a little bit more in. But one of the ways that he was able to distinguish himself was because Harithas, despite his possible uh, left wing, you know, leanings, uh he, you know, uh, or despite his possible CIA connections, uh-huh. he had left-wing leanings. And so yes. he was able to distinguish himself by being, like, you know, the most left-wing. Like, I'm in the SDS, you know, like, uh, trying to be, like, this uh, more active radical in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in a way, yeah, it kind of gets into the whole idea that there, you know, uh, like, there's this guy uh, who uh, is, so yeah, exactly, he's... he's uh, anti-establishment establishment you know he's of use to the establishment as kind of like a form of controlled opposition where he's arranging these super lucrative art shows of like yoko ono and like uh john lennon when he was about to be deported and things like that you know mm-hmm. uh and uh like uh you know he writes about uh how he uh like created one uh you know avant-garde art show and the trustees were uh, apoplectic uh you know, uh, because he gave uh, Lennon and Yoko Ono like the entire museum for a show. But the bookkeepers were ecstatic. Harithas had quadrupled the museum's annual attendance with one show and wiped out the stagnant museum's deficit. During the same time frame, when the university was still raw from the Kent State demonstrations, he brought Angela Davis, David Dellinger, and the Berrigan brothers, fresh from jail, to speak at Everson to standing room only crowds. So, you wow. know, he uh, was creating all this money for them despite being like, you know, this rogue figure and yeah i think that's interesting in light of uh one thing that you know i i I thought of while i was reading this was like it's very interesting like this kind of uh you know sort of masculine macho persona of like the conspiracy researcher kind of a lot of like his friends in the book uh lombardi's friends talk about him as like a library guy or like kind of a cat like you know wimpy sort of guy but it's interesting how i feel like uh you know maybe in the time since the 70s uh, maybe due to things like the conversation, like in the sort of legacy of that, like, uh, you know, Mulder and the X-Files, uh, mm-hmm. stuff like that. This has become like kind of a very uh, profitable kind of like niche or like role. 
And I find it interesting that, like, you know, if you think about some of the prominent, like, media figures, like, uh, you know, who want to have kind of, like, a masculine persona now, like, I think it's very interesting how many people who start out maybe being, like, comedians or whatever, or, like, you know... Yeah, they start to get jacked. Yeah, well, not just jacked, but they start to cast themselves as conspiracy researchers. Oh, Um, yeah. No, that is is an interesting phenomenon. I mean, maybe it goes all the way back to, like, Bill Hicks or, at times, like, uh, George Carlin. But, I mean, like, Joe Rogan is a great example Yeah, exactly. Or, Uh, you know, uh, yeah, other podcasts out there. Um, like, you know, it's interesting how, like, this sort of, if you're looking for this kind of, like, way to be involved in the media and to have this cool, rebellious, like, uh, you know, uh, persona, like, a Mm -hmm. lot of the time people cast it, you know, they kind of, uh, uh, portray themselves as like this you know like tweaked out uh, c- conspiracy guy who's like crazy like you know and i'm drawing all the connections you know like uh mm-hmm. it's like a cool you know persona to have and that's like kind of how you know that's like how lombardi is imagined after the fact is like even though like uh that might have been really the reality of him uh but yeah i think we see that as like kind of a type that yeah a wacky we, prankster yeah. in some ways yeah like uh or well, not even like you know or, but like someone who's like you know, he's so close to the truth that it's like driving him mad, you know, like, uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, like, uh, yeah, maybe it's there's a very classic trope. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Though, uh, yeah, I think when she gets into kind of examining the last months of his life, there is a lot of ambiguity there where I think with a lot of other cases where people have criticized the, uh, the bushes and then ended up killing themselves weirdly, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he, he was just hitting his stride. Mm-hmm. As yeah. you know, he was like experiencing this celebrity and notoriety and had all these things going for him. And it was not talking to people in a kind of depressing way. And he was a guy that could get was moody and kind of depressive at times and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it doesn't exactly line up very well that he was, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, he was like a wild person, you know, he was like a big drinker, you know, he would get into, in fact, like one of his early brush ups with the Bush family. That's another interesting thing uh, about him in terms of like the art world connection is that, you know, he's kind of tilting at some of these huge power networks, but at the same time, because he kind of rubbed elbows with Jim Harithas and like had gone out to Houston to work for him, like when he got that prestigious posting, you know, and he had kind of like been in these same circles with these sort of blue bloods who are financing uh, all these art uh, exhibitions and these museums and these galleries. He, you know, a lot of these sort of uh, vendettas that he had against these powerful people weren't just like, you know, the way that you or I like hate HW. Like he felt mm-hmm. it was like personal, like, you know, he yes. had been like personally wronged by this family at like, you know, various points or had personally been offended by these like financial networks. Like they, you know, like uh, Ed Baker yes. was someone who was like married to his ex-girlfriend for a while. Um, Jim Baker was or Ed Baker. Yeah. Ed, Ed Baker, yeah, Ed Baker yeah. who um, had a very mysterious death that might've been faked. Um, Yes, and who, uh, you know, had been kind of, uh, po- he possibly even had, like, some kind of uh, CIA connections as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, possibly, like, some mob financiers, something that he also was uh, listening yeah. to. Yeah, and, like, uh, yeah, Lombardi sort of charted Meyer Lansky's substantial sort of connections to different uh, networks, and he was someone who was maybe rolled up in uh, at, at Baker as, as well. But, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. his... Uh, 
you know, uh, the, the ouster that was mentioned from uh, the, his first, you know, sort of prestigious art job uh, was essentially a funny uh, story. Um, it, like uh, there was some kind of art exhibition that was like a kind of involving food or something uh mm-hmm. and it was like this weird like kind of like i'll just uh, i'll read again from from uh from Coldstone. um the truth about you know how he was uh kicked out uh basically you know it says like uh she says in mark's papers i found a note by the artist saying that he had a run-in with an unidentified someone from george hw bush's first international bank shares who had effectively blackballed him for participating in the l- kind of large-scale art projects he had been curating the truth lies somewhere in the fabulous free-for-all that went down in the Houston Museum history, went down in Houston Museum history as, quote, the famous bread fight, uh, CAMH opening on October 28, 1977, that involved 60 members of the iconic Texas cheerleading team known as the Kilgore Rangerettes, building a 200-foot wall of green, blue, and red bread loaves under the eyes of board members and their guests, who had been partaking freely of the evening's cheer. Concocted by Catalonian artist Antonio Moralda, famed for creating theatrical celebrations out of comestibles, the happening turned ugly when one of the guests, presumably inflamed by alcohol and or the sight of the rangerette's signature red panties flashing as they split-kicked their way across the floor, tore a loaf out of the installation and lobbed it at the head of a woman guest. Members of the good old boy fraternity were heavily in attendance, and the happening turned into a gigantic food fight. A fist fight broke out, according to the CAMH's coyly nostalgic oral history of its wild and crazy days, when, quote, two artists, in sense of the destruction of the work, sailed into the sea of unruly guests and socked a few of them. The fist fight escalated into a general melee that spilled out of the museum and onto the sidewalk of Houston's posh gallery district, where the police broke it up. The CAMH oral history, narrated by then-board chairman Marilyn Lubetkin, does not specify who the artists were, but one of them is alleged to have been uh, Mark Lombardi. Um, And uh, history does not relate if at least some of the more unruly board members were carted off to the calaboose, but Herathos was blamed for the culture of decadence that had allowed such a fiasco to besmirch a noble institution. The Kilgore Rangerettes and their hijinks were the final kick for Herathos's board, who, despite their progressive veneer and taste for naughtiness, were socially conservative business folk. The Houston art scene that was supposed to become the blue hot pulsating center of the universe had spun out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it speculates that uh, the person that uh, he he hit uh, or socked, that Mark had socked, no one will comment on the record or off uh, who it was, but uh, from the note he left behind, it may have been a bush. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah.
Uh, Whatever he did, he apparently, he certainly perceived that he had done something to offend or piss off the Bush family, and so they basically orchestrated him getting fired from this, this very, you know, high-profile curator job at CAMH. Yeah, he was um, in Texas, yeah. And mess his career up, yeah. um, There's a paragraph in here that uh, kind of sets that up, like how he felt afterwards. and she writes that, like, tucked away in the avalanche of Lombardi's research files is an unpublished article he wrote in 1992 titled GB and the Bakshish Pipeline. It is about the alleged involvement of George H.W. Bush, Adnan Khashoggi, Bush's Interfirst Bank, the successor titled First International Bank Shares, and Lloyd Benson, among others, in an ongoing international covert operation designed to funnel Bakshish bribes paid by U.S. companies to agents and representatives of the ruling families of Saudi Arabia, Iran before Khomeini, and the Persian Gulf states to bid on and obtain commercial contracts for everything from aircraft to telecommunication services, oil rights to public utility projects. In an addendum to the piece titled, What's My Angle? Lombardi said he was motivated by, quote, revenge of sorts for having been <laughs> kicked out of paradise, his first golden job working with Harithus at the Contemporary Art Museum of Houston. Though neither Mark nor Harithus would ever discuss his fall from grace, in this note he identifies his antagonist as George H.W. Bush and cronies. Quote, in the late 1970s, I was working as an organizer of art exhibitions in the Houston area. First International Bank, George Bush's bank, barged into the scene at about this time, effectively vetoing my my participation in a large number of projects. No one in the Houston art world can or will explain his statement because, as Sissy Farenthold remarks, insiders do not criticize insiders. The answer may, and that's weird, um, the answer may lie in the interlocked relationships of one very wealthy donor, Marilyn Lubetkin, a big-time progressive who presided over the CAMH board at the time of his dismissal. Lubetkin, according to Mark's ex-wife Day, was instrumental in getting rid of both Mark and his mentor, uh, Jim Harithas. Sources in Houston's art circles say Lubetkin was forced to fire both Lombardi and Harithas by pressure from the board of trustees following their melee at the famous Bread and Rangerettes Jamboree. She could not be reached for comment on a book about Mark Lombardi. Uh, today, in the way things often go down in Texas, Lubetkin works hand in glove with Harithas and both his art car and station museums. Yeah, and I guess there is a deep, um, I guess, looking at the uh, CAMH board in the 1970s reveals a surprisingly deep and tenacious interlock with George H.W. Bush and First International in the person of another sissy, Mrs. I.H. Denny Kempner III, who is still chairman of the museum's board today. Uh, and her husband is the heir to the imperial sugar fortune that built an entire suburb of Houston known as Sugarland, um, and was director of Capital National Bank in Houston, founded by Lovett Baker, first cousin to Bush Secretary of State James A. Baker III. And their relationship was close enough for James Baker to serve as Lovett's pallbearer uh, in, uh, in 2010. So, uh, so yeah, so that's like kind of the genesis where he comes up against the Bushes in the 1970s before he was vice president, but he was certainly on the come up. I, he was already ex CIA director at that point, um, and got him fired. And he, yeah, he, he had a little bit of a vendetta against this guy and started looking into his business, uh, activities and then started to make the connection 
one of the things that was innovative about Mark Lombardi's use of interlocks is that he not only usually it only applied to businesses, but then he applied it to shell companies and intelligence cutouts and things of mm-hmm. and, and included CIA operatives and things like that, uh, yeah. which really expanded the networks and, uh, you know, increased the amount of connections he was able to make. And he discovered this entire shadow world that was forming and. Yeah, throughout the, as we've covered before in the 1980s, um, these networks that he was uh, tracing, you know, were the, like, they were the infrastructure, you know, uh, of the Iran-Contra enterprise. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so yeah. he was onto this stuff, I mean, very early, it seems. Yes. Um, yeah, and uh, he was also into the like uh, another aspect of uh, what makes his death mysterious is that it happened like you know just before nine eleven kind of kind of and he was uh, yes you know also kind of into the connections between this network and Al Qaeda and uh-huh. all that stuff you know yeah. so I think it's uh, highly safe to say that he would have had a lot to uh, he would have a, he. <laughs> He would have had a lot of fun with 9-11 if had yeah. he been alive afterwards in terms of tracing those connections that he'd already been mm-hmm. working on. Um, yeah. And also it, it should be mentioned that he died in March 2000 uh, just as uh, the son of his arch nemesis was uh, fighting it out in the Republican primaries mm-hmm. to uh, to get the Republican nomination. And so... Uh, that definitely drew a lot of suspicion from certain people because uh, one of his paintings that he he was working on a few things in the late 90s and starting to exhibit paintings in New York where, you know, um, there were a lot of influential, powerful people. I think he, I, I know Goldstone notes at one point that he, he even seemed to be somewhat aware of the types of audiences that would come out to his gallery openings and would notice there were a lot of like, you know, uh, U.S. attorneys, like prosecutors, like people involved in government um, and probably, you know, probably on the more liberal side. But, you know, it, that that was another thing where maybe he was kind of doing this like meta game of like, I'm going to all these kind of up and coming, you know, uh, professionals, these yuppies that are going to come into my show. I'm going to be throwing out like the guts of all of this financial crime right up on the wall for them to check out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think he, I don't know if he seriously thought, oh, something's going to like come out of it. But I think that, uh, there was a kind of, um, consciousness that, you know, being in New York, uh, his work was going to get way more kind of national and international exposure and attention than it would have gotten in like Houston. Right. Um, but you know, there was a Bush out there and they needed (laughs) to become president, uh, maybe to do nine 11. So, you know, people had to be, uh, certain people had to be taken care of. A super interesting thing is that like even after nine 11, uh, the FBI like came to like the Whitney or whatever yes. where his work was on display and they're yeah. like can we borrow this and then they like raided a bunch of like Islamic charities that were like <laughs> listed as having these inter- yeah like, Operation Green uh, that was Operation Green Quest right yeah 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 yeah, yeah they um, did they did and I think um I think the museum yeah it was the Whitney. Uh, yeah, yeah they were like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they just kind of like uh, showed up uh, weirdly. Um, yeah, they uh, the police didn't examine his work after his death. Um, 
And uh, Goldstone says that's curious because the artist felt the FBI had been following him, following him since his youthful days in the SDS. And yeah, shortly after 9-11, they showed up at the wedding. Yeah, and this whole thing happened where they were like, uh, you know, can we remove this? Uh, and they ended up, you know, using it. Uh, and yeah, I guess it was actually like uh, they were made to study it. Uh, yeah. or his, you know, sort of, uh, s- social network, uh, techniques. And I, I think uh, even, I think at some point, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but did the CIA study, I don't think they went to try to like borrow them, but that the CIA started using them in training, like how to trace terrorist yeah, networks and right. stuff like that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was, I think it, it was the CIA, but yeah, they, uh, I mean, uh, they definitely like uh, it was definitely used by one of those agencies to to tr- like a ch- model these sort of social networks and, and how to track them because you know yeah as, as we kind of talked about they were um, you know uh, kind of coming this uh, sort of uh, form of power network was sort of coming into into awareness uh, and the sort of model yeah. of understanding the world like methodologically. Uh, was you know something that I guess you could say he was on the forefront on or on the on the avant garde uh, of so um, well certainly yeah. and, and you know it does lend a certain amount of credence to the things that he was you know the content of his interlock work you know mm-hmm. that it wasn't just somebody kind of being cheeky or making like these tenuous connections that there, there actually was a lot of substance. Um, and I guess, I don't know, do we like, so the work themselves, uh, or the work oh, yeah, themselves. Sorry. I just, I did just find my note on this and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, this tragedy into farce reversal, uh, it says the imp in Mark Lombardi would have delighted to know that whether the circumstances of his past, whatever the circumstances of his passing and his next incarnation, the three letter agencies of the United States would be studying the artists who had made a career out of studying them. This tragedy into farce reversal came about in the aftermath of 9-11. The CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the DOD, and the ONR, the Office of Naval Research, were required to take crass courses in social network analysis in order to figure out linkages within and between terrorist groups. The rhizomatic drawings, the quote rhizomatic drawings, of Mark Lombardi were a prime focus of their attention. Today, 15 years after his death, the artist's work has spun off a cottage data visualization industry that encompasses IBM, MIT, the PayPal mafia of Silicon Valley, and an Whoa. ONR-funded computer program named, in his honor, the Lombardi Spirograph, an amusing as well as amazing achievement for an artist who declared he had little use for the internet. That, um, I wonder if Palantir used any of Lombardi's kind of well greg stone uh apparently i have no idea who that is but uh he boldly asserted that lombardi was the first artist to do metadata um and uh roger hurwitz a senior fellow at the canada center for global security studies said uh mark's work is very well known among people who do social network analysis uh and you know uh, that guy hurwitz is also a founder of explorations and cyber international relations a program funded by the united states defense department's minerva research initiative that mobilizes the resources of the nation's top universities to improve the DOD's access to cutting-edge social science research. Um, Everyone who does it has looked at him, uh, Lombardi. Wow. That's pretty incredible. So I I feel, yeah, this is, um, this definitely falls in that category, maybe that we talked a little bit on the Q&A about Thomas Pynchon, you know, this idea that even though he, he was a little more, like, out front about maybe, I don't think he was shy about telling people his kind of political persuasion but he was super shy about fully explaining what he was getting at and could mm-hmm. even hide much like pension behind a little bit of the, like this shield of like postmodern art 
and like post-structuralism or whatever and kind of be like, ooh, am I just like playing a fun game with everybody? Um, But I think if you look at the content of his work, like he, he wasn't just having a laugh like this this was the result of like meticulous amounts of research and it all checks out. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, it's so interesting. Cause I feel like, uh, you know, again, like I need to like reread like Pynchon's work. Cause like the last time I read it, like I was not, in high school, like not equipped to like understand it like properly, like with this political like sensitivity or just like the worldliness of an adult. But like, uh, you know, in terms of Lombardi, uh, I think that it, points to you know and if we do do a pension episode like you know of course we'll, we'll re-read on that stuff but uh mm-hmm. yeah uh but anyway uh yeah in terms of Lombardi it's interesting because I feel like part of like the whole angst of it is like uh you know this whole idea of like outsiders and insiders and his own sort of like the the whole like uh, trauma almost of like the art world and mm-hmm. uh, the sort of uh, clickishness and like the the way the same the the way that the sort of insularity of these networks like are mirrored in uh, the sort of art establishment and this very like sort of and and uh, the way that there's like a veneer over it of uh, respectability or of mm-hmm. uh, you know artistic value and or something like that and uh, I think that like his own sort of complicity. Um, or his, his feeling of complicity, I think, was uh, something that, uh, you know, was really uh, like uh, at the forefront of his mind, like uh, in, in some of his work or, or something that he was he was sensitive, uh, sensitive to. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, it goes into kind of like, yeah, you know, it's weird that like, uh, you know, we now see his work being instrumentalized by like the cia to like understand well, social networks or like you know the whole it's fact just like, like you know teaching yeah. gramsci at west Point. exactly it, yeah it's, or, well, i or, think yeah, he was or something you know uh it, it's the same yeah exactly it's this very guy much i mean i think this guy came up with a kind of like a in a i don't know intellectual technology if you will or a like informational technology uh which is, or I guess a conceptual technology. I don't know. Maybe that's the best word for it. Um, to basically demystify power relations, um, which I think is immensely valuable, especially going into the dawn of the internet age and kind of advanced, uh, you know, uh, imperialist capitalism, um, and the global flow of, yeah, the global flow of money, uh, of hot money around the world and the opaqueness of so many uh, financial networks and all these things. I mean, he, he came up with this kind of, um, yeah, this really powerful conceptual tool that I think in his hands was pretty productive at exposing a lot of things or tracing the very... Uh, well, I mean, I guess you could you could I actually don't see so much. Uh, I haven't read too many criticisms of Lombardi from even like, I don't know, maybe like an anti conspiracy theory perspective. But I would I, I would imagine maybe some people could say like, well, just because somebody served on two different boards of directors, like, you know, you're, you're kind of grasping at straws there. If you think that that means they were involved in a criminal conspiracy, you know what I mean? Like, like perhaps that would be an excuse for why um he's still kind of a quote conspiracy theorist and thus we shouldn't take it it, like too seriously but he's he he's tracing kind of um well i feel like he that's the thing like you know is he like a conspiracy theorist because 
or is it conspiracy theory that he's doing because like he just like puts the connections out there and there's even like you know it's very very interesting and compelling like uh you know and i think that this is really like uh part of like the artistic aspect of it is that you know there's even an aesthetic component to it like these are beautiful works of art uh Mm -hmm. and like you know he's just like demonstrating the reality of these connections that do exist like there's nothing really that is implied so much except he's showing as i think that uh you know that independent uh that uh, publication, uh, independent curators are a national publication about uh, called uh, Mark Lombardi Global Networks that I read mm-hmm. a little bit from earlier, um, you know, that uh, collects some of his, his paintings and, and things like that. Uh, as, uh, you know, as they say uh, in that, I think that, you know, he's just illustrating these uh, linkages and it's not necessarily even to say, you know, as they interpret it, is saying like, you know, are these people involved in wrongdoing you know that's part of kind of the question of it like they Mm -hmm. have these like strong links like financially practically materially to like these criminal uh enterprises Mm -hmm. like so like does the question then like of like oh did they really do anything wrong in a way like it becomes irrelevant or at least like heavily problematized by you know the really the the demonstrated reality of the the involvement they have in this and I think that's yeah. part of like the drama and the interest of these these pieces. Um, is I, I think in a way, the, like, yeah, the, yeah the, the absence of a an explicit narrative, uh, I think in a way is sort of what makes it work as art. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, exactly. Is, it's a different type of, of narrative. You know, there are some times where he does have kind of like a even a timeline, like kind of going across the top of, of the painting. Uh, yes. Or the drawing. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, like, uh, there's, uh, they actually have a legend, uh, his legend that he devised, uh, and, uh, it's, uh, yeah, if you have, like, a straight line, that's, like, uh, some type of influence or control, if you have, mm-hmm. uh, just, like, a one, uh, with one arrow point. If you have two mm-hmm. arrow points, that means some type of mutual relationship or association. If you have a dotted arrow, uh, a, that means, uh, a flow of money, loans, or credits, if you have a uh, like a an arrow with sort of a uh, zigzag, um, that's a sale or transfer of an asset. Um, if you have like a, a dotted line but without an arrowhead and instead like a kind of two vertical lines at the end, that's mm-hmm. a blocked or incomplete transaction. And if you mm-hmm. have kind of a spiraling line, that's a sale or spinoff of a property. So these mm-hmm. are mostly like very practical things. I mean, the, I guess the vaguest one would be some type of influence or control. But as I've seen, like if you observe the paintings, usually those are pretty kind of explicit, you know, like the influence or control will be, you know, like uh, like you'll be able to kind of intuit it by looking at them, like what the connections kind of are. Yeah. They'll be just straight up interlocks, you know, uh, but for sure. Yeah. Like uh, the yeah, I think that. Uh, yeah, sometimes there's the aspect of, like, you know, a timeline, but a lot of the time, yeah, there are uh, these kind of, like, associational webs. Um, and he has, like, little marginalia in red, which I think is, you know, a very interesting touch. Like, you know, the play of black and red, you know, uh, is mm-hmm. very, uh, you know, it's a, a time-tested uh, way of making marginalia. That's where he'll uh, kind of editorialize, like, a little bit, where he'll talk about, like, you know, uh, events or uh, things like that, or uh, maybe some kind of, like, key... Uh, criminal uh, things or, or sort of a conspiratorial type of notes, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't necessarily think that this would necessarily fall under the rubric of, well, 
it gets at the kind of thing of like you know the conspiracy theory as like an epistemological category that yes. is similar to the category of terrorists where like it's just something like that means like oh you know like a bad kind of killing or bombing that like you know yeah, the, yeah. the people who have a monopoly on violence in our system didn't do or a conspiracy theory is just like you know uh like a bad way of thinking that like the way that bad irrational people think uh, it is but, yeah. I, yeah i've like been that. reading a lot of um there's been kind of a flurry of academic writing um uh over the last like five years about the epistemology of conspiracy theory and um there's actually it does seem to be kind of a growing trend maybe in academia to uh to critique this entire category as being like inherently unstable nebulous and it it carries with it that negative connotation so that anything that is a conspiracy theory is categorically wrong or bad and thus you know if you dump anything into that bucket then it you don't have to take it seriously and of course like as we have explored extensively on this podcast um i think that uh that that bucket of conspiracy theory is uh is like an uh, it's just not it's not really a coherent category if you think about it for kind of more than five seconds, because that encaps encapsulates things that are so far out and probably, you know, improbable or that are unfalsifiable, like you'll never be able to prove it one way or another. And then there's kind of things that are closer to the subjects of like what Mark Lombardi was doing and things like Iran Contra, where um, I think there is like this inherent in the category of conspiracy theory in U.S. culture um, is this idea that like, if, if I don't know, the Washington post and the New York times don't like announce from the rooftops that a thing is real, then Mm -hmm. it it effectively isn't. And Mm -hmm. it should not be, you cannot proceed with any kind of argument, um, or narrative as if it is real, because then you'll get attacked for thinking in this like inherently flawed way. But as we see, like cover-ups do happen throughout history and conspiracies, uh, conspiring is real. Yeah. Um, it, it's actually to some extent, I mean, it, it, it's probably to a degree, uh, an inherent component of all like government structures, certainly of like private business, uh, and military and all of these things. And so I think there does need to be kind of a more, uh, sophisticated rubric for, uh, disambiguating a lot of these things yeah. than simply like is it I mean I mean and of course the most obvious thing is like the CIA like pushed the term conspiracy theory into the culture to denigrate people who were questioning the JFK assassination in the late 60s I think around the time Jim Garrison was doing his trials in New Orleans so it you know it is literally a product of Langley to get everybody talking in this way. Um, and now it's, it's almost, it's so embedded in our culture that people don't even kind of question it, but, um, yeah. And it's interesting. It's kind of almost goes like into the whole issue of like the narrative structure versus like, you know, and how he tried to initially write this as a book, but had like difficulty doing it. And even maybe like, uh, the illusion to pension because the, like, when I think of a conspiracy, you know, and the difference maybe between uh, the kind of storytelling that these uh, drawings do versus like, you know, maybe a, a, a sort of narrative of conspiracy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, conspiracies make like for very compelling, like narrative stories, you know, like the yeah. 
usually if you have like a bad guy in a story you want to have like them all sort of like very uh conspiring in a very sort of uh comprehensible way where there's like you know this is where like the smoke-filled room thing you know comes from you know like uh that is very accessible as like a narrative of conspiracy and like an image of conspiring or like maybe like Iago and Othello, you know, like, uh, <laughs> which, which to be fair, probably was a common means of conspiring back in the day was to sit in a smoke filled room and like, you know, hash things out. Um, yeah. I'm and sure and I'm probably smoke filled rooms like where like, you know, secret, you know, like where people were in the room where it happened. And yeah, they, you know, at the, uh, at the sitting at the foot of the owl statue at Bohemian Grove, like yeah. just hashing it out, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm sure that that has happened and I'm sure there's also been like palace intrigue, but yeah, it's much easier to like dramatize than like Othello struggling against like, uh, you know, institutional like Elizabethan racism or whatever, you know, <laughs> like, uh, it's much no, easier it is. to have it, like, I mean, Iago like plot to like ruin his life, you know, uh, for sure, and, for sure. Yeah. Like, and uh, I, I think there's more, maybe a little more room, uh, these, maybe it's like, you know, maybe we can give Foucault a little credit for, you know, convincing people that everything is jail, that now there's maybe a little bit more of a understanding of like institutional, I don't know, like in, almost like well, there's there's definitely you know, things like idea. structural racism. Yeah, there's that, definitely that, an idea that like s- there's systemic problems, but I think that people a lot of the time still have difficulty understanding that uh, yes. or like what it means or like how like it works. Uh, especially like you know, yeah, there's definitely like uh, you know, uh, I mean, Joe Biden like said systemic racism or whatever, so I feel like that has pretty much entered the liberal mainstream, mm-hmm. even though like you know, uh, in the kind of the reactionary faction in American society, there's still resistance to the idea. Um, all, all the time on the grounds that it is difficult to comprehend. Um, but I also feel like, you know, obviously, like, does Joe Biden have, like, a like an analysis of structural racism that, like, makes sense, like, you know, or in <laughs> any way, or, not. like, is actually, like, a real analysis? No. Like, uh, and is it, yeah, like, uh, and also, like, a big problem with tackling that stuff, as I think we've seen, is that, like, you know, uh, the problem is that it's hard to, like, blame anybody, you know, like, uh, and that's, like, yeah. part of the reason why there's so much angst around that is because, like, if it's structural, you know, in a way, like, uh, a lot of people are complicit in it, you know, blah, 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 so it's hard to, like, you know, really pin uh, someone down. You know, you can actually yeah. see kind of in some of these interlocks, like the in- institutional networks, you can actually, like, by tracing the lines, you can see, like, what organizations are, like, nodes in these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, what institutions, you know, like the BCCI, you know, Space Research Corp, things like yeah, that, you uh, know. The uh, Nugenhan uh, Bank, the Castle yeah. Bank. He, he did, I mean, if you go on um, LombardiNetworks.net, which is the website you mentioned that sort of digitized um all of this stuff there's actually a searchable database of um if you go to analyses and then actors analysis on that website uh it'll take you to uh, an alphabetical list of like every entity every person and company that is mentioned uh in any of his drawings and it is like quite a vast list and it kind of has almost the entire cast of like shady Iran Contra, but also going back to like Alan Dulles and Nixon and Meyer Lansky. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of Saudi names. Um, and, uh, you know, like, though, don't, uh, use that as like a substitute for looking at his actual paintings, because while those do represent the networks, like they don't really show you like the beauty 
So like you That's definitely true. should look at it. Well, you can also eyes. find they they have mostly yeah. they have um you can find photographic versions on this website of most of the yeah. paintings oh, if you click on them. Yeah, the most of them have links uh, to various places where yeah. um you definitely yeah, should look at the actual drawings. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the digital versions like don't really uh, convey it. Uh, but yeah, um yeah, and I think uh you know, just to go back to the sort of uh, issue of Pigeon or, like, of Lombardi's sort of success in the art world, it kind of raises the question in a way of, like, what are the uses, like, of uh, this kind, like, of conspiracy theory or whatever, or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, of course, this methodology, we've raised the problem, like, the question of, like, whether this could really be considered, like, quote, conspiracy theory, or if this is just, like, you know, applying, like, a common, like, accounting tool or, like, a once common accounting tool to like real yeah. uh, material networks but you know uh certainly i feel like his persona kind of was and like uh, that of the sort of proto conspiracy theorist uh you know well I, I just yeah very into, yeah like uh, just just to, to pin real quick another little um pin in the balloon of like people who use conspiracy theory in that disqualifying way like it it I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, if the CIA and uh, the PayPal mafia and the military and the NSA all found such value in this stuff, I mean, what is what is the CIA doing when I mean, we all know it like funds terrorism. But like, let's just say hypothetically, it's pretending to, you know, track down terrorists who are doing an attack or that they believe are doing an attack to some degree. They are pursuing a theory of a conspiracy Mm-hmm. of yeah. individuals to do a terrorist attack. I mean, like, right. 9-11 was a conspiracy, no matter what way you cut it. Uh, yeah, even if you believe sure. the official story 100%, it was absolutely a conspiracy. And if you didn't have proof of it yet, it would, like, by definition, um, be a conspiracy theory. But, of course, you know, we know, like, that's not real. what's really meant by it. Um, it's meant that you're, like, taking your... I think there's a, there, there's a connotation with like conspiracy theory that you're asserting that like this is the way it is. I've figured it out and I don't yeah. have all the evidence, but I know because I have the circumstantial stuff I've cobbled together. And I think like, you know, obviously I don't think you want to like throw down hard on something where you don't have sufficient evidence to prove it. But I think we need to make some space for things that if you haven't been able to prove yet, but are capable of being proved at some point. Um, there has to be some kind of intermediate category where you, that I'm sure the military and the CIA have, you know, in their real world operations to uh, uncover various or, you know, if there's foreign spies in the country, then that's a conspiracy of intelligence operatives trying to do something. So, I mean, I, I think that like we should give ourselves the same intellectual allowance that like the military gives itself. You know, I think yeah. we're putting ourselves at like a competitive disadvantage against like the security state if we um, try to if we get I don't know if we develop this reflexive aversion to, to any kind of able. anything that implies a conspiracy. Well, yeah, I think that it's very much similar to the conspiracy theory. That I think that, uh, speaking of nine eleven, there's like a very like uh, you know uh, valid comparison to the term terrorism. Because, mm-hmm. like, terrorism, like, technically speaking, is, like, you know, or if you try to have an objective definition of this, it's, like, uh, you know, the use of, I'm looking up, uh, I'm, I type in terrorism to Google, what comes up is the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians in pursuit of political aims. So in that case, like, the U.S. military, like, does terrorism all the time. 
Yes, uh, of course. You know, and the only course. real thing is like whether it's unlawful, which like you know, uh, in the interpretation of like in the yeah, in the interpretation of like Al Qaeda, like it's Islamically legitimate, you know, licit to like you know do this because like it's a jihad or whatever. That's not the opinion of ulama. You know, it's not actually legitimate. But of course. The point is that this whole idea of the law or, is relative. You yeah, know? I mean, you could like, say that uh, like Nazi Germany, like the extermination operation, exactly. The Holocaust, hundred uh, percent legal. Was, yeah, it was yeah. legal. It was yeah, totally it was legal. legal. Um, uh, yeah, so sanctioned like, by the highest levels, and that was a conspiracy. Might we remind ourselves, like that? That was one of the biggest conspiracies. Was yeah, that we're going to kill up. millions of pe- of a s- certain types of people? We're going to literally mass murder them, and then hopefully it'll just shake out, and like we'll be able to deny it, and maybe. Maybe we'll win the war and like, uh, you know, nobody will actually, you know, they were mindful of like not getting caught doing it. Yeah. To and a they had show camps. They had fake like terrorism, mm-hmm. like they had fake camps to try to make people think that it wasn't like as bad as it was. Yeah, um, that was a massive yeah. psyop. And, you know, so we're supposed yeah. to believe that these governments or people and especially the same networks people who actually that were Nazis, yeah, brought people, so yeah. many Nazis over from that same government and then like kind of found common cause with them and had them work on top secret military projects and everything from like rocketry to like mind control that this is like, a, you know, epistemologically like kind of unthinkable that, you know, and I think that's the other thing with conspiracy theories is that a lot of people, um, unfortunately, I think in American culture, I think they've been sort of conditioned subtly, but they, it's like they, I think the fundamental thing that prevents them is they, they kind of don't fundamentally believe that powerful people conspire <laughs> at all like just um, categorically that's not how power works that's not how government works it's not how business because I, I mean we're told that hypothetically there are like things to like pre- there are laws to prevent insider trading so like you can't do that or else you'll get caught but like we know mm-hmm. that there's got to be so much like like sly insider trading going on i mean we saw it during the pandemic we saw all these senators like buying um certain stocks you know when they were getting like classified briefings <laughs> and then the stock would like skyrocket the next week because they knew what the behavior of the market was that's just like a very small example but um i mean if we tr- if, if we push back against anything on this podcast i think it would be the idea that powerful people never conspire in secret to like enhance their own power yeah uh and also like i just feel like the goalposts of uh you know what a conspiracy is uh can always like shift to be like oh that wasn't like you know for instance like you know just to give uh, a concrete example um from like uh one of these drawings um in 1972 for the first time in 20 years an australian labor party candidate became the nation's prime minister within a brief period this leader uh go whitlam dramatically transformed the political landscape of the country by instituting equal pay for women, legal aid as a universal right, free national health care, free contraceptives, and land rights legislation for Aborigines, eliminating the military draft, university and college fees, and racial quotas for immigration. This is, I'm reading from uh, Global Networks, uh, mm-hmm. by the way, from that same, uh, that same uh, publication. Withdrawing all Australian troops from Vietnam and replacing the colonial monkey or Commonwealth government uh, with Australian government moniker. Sorry, I said monkey but uh, that's for our Bigfoot episode. Anyway, uh, and the British anthem, uh, God Save the Queen, with an Australian national anthem. In his zeal to right outstanding wrongs, Whitlam recognized the People's Republic of China, spoke on behalf of Palestinian rights to the United Nations Assembly, and supported an Indian Ocean zone of peace. 
He also advocated the nationalization of Australia's oil and gas industries and seriously questioned the CIA's longstanding presence in Australia, Uh-oh. where it controlled several military installations, including Pine Gap, a yeah, top Pine secret Gap's base for one. monitoring Soviet spy satellites and missile tests, mm-hmm. relaying CIA communiques throughout the world, and preparing for nuclear warfare. So strategic was Pine Gap to the agency's overall operation of the CIA, Director William Colby later described the Whitlam government's attempt to limit the U.S. activities there as one of the three world crises of his career. In order to keep Whitlam from exposing the CIA's assets, Colby and other agency officials helped mastermind the opposition party's constitutional coup, ousting this labor leader from office in December 1975, the -hmm. same month that the Pine Gap Treaty between the United States and Australian governments was set up for renewal. One of the ways the CIA is reputed to have affected the shift in power was through a series of payoffs by their de facto subsidiary, the Sydney-based Nugan Hand Bank. Mm. Even though Lombardi's drawing dealing with Nugan Hand Bank begins with developments that occurred the same year Whitlam became prime minister, and Whitlam's tragic downfall is an important preamble to the events that unfolded, Lombardi chose not to include a reference to Whitlam in the drawing. More a vehicle for serving the CIA and laundering revenue from heroin operations in the Golden Triangle than a conventional financial institution, Nugan Hand Bank was established in 1973 by an unlikely pair. Frank Nugan, the major player in Lombardi's drawing, whose name appears at the upper left, was an Australian attorney and playboy with mafia connections. Michael John Hand, whose name appears somewhere somewhat to the right of Nugan's, was a seasoned Green Beret who fought in Vietnam before becoming a CIA operative training Hmong guerrillas in northern Laos. Together, the two men heading up this business concern oversaw the intricate financial dealings arising from arms shipments, covert paramilitary operations, and moving funds for a variety of underworld figures. They each developed separate areas of expertise. Nugan focused on tax fraud and money laundering, while Han concentrated on the company's international branches, which were registered as a Cayman Islands corporation. The bank became known for allowing tax-free deposits, paying high interest rates, and maintaining secrecy. Amongst many services, it specialized in money laundering by charging 22 cents on the dollar. In the drawing, the company's transactions are represented by two long horizontal timelines. This is an example where there's timelines uh, between which most of the information is diagrammed. The upper one designates Nugan Hand Limited, Sydney, and the lower one, Nugan Hand Subsidiaries. Ultimately, Nugan Hand functioned as the CIA's conduit for covert payments, and Colby, after retiring as director of this intelligence organization, served as the bank's legal counsel, thus providing <laughs> it with legitimacy and new contacts. When the uh. delicate balance of maintaining an international conglomerate with relatively few real assets visibly faltered, Nugan was found with a bullet hole in his head, seated in a Mercedes on a country road 100 miles west of Sydney. Lombardi notes ominously and cryptically at the end of his timeline, 1980, collapse after co-founder Frank Nugan found dead from gunshot wound, depositors lose $50 million. In addition <laughs> to holding the 30 caliber rifle with which he apparently killed himself, Nugan clutched a handwritten list of names with a tally of dollar amounts in the five- to six-figure range that each owed. Included in his list were ex-CIA Director Colby and the ranking Republican on the House Armed Services Committee, Bob Wilson. After helping to destroy a number of the bank's incriminating records, hand vanished. Some reports, uh, sorry, most reports assume that as a CIA associate, he was provided with a new passport and returned to the United States where he lives under an assumed name. So is that not a conspiracy? Like, yeah. you know, I just feel like CIA yeah, heroin trafficking. Speaking, yeah. Like, you know, uh, and like William Colby becoming like their legal counsel to give them like legitimacy yeah. after leaving the CIA. Like, uh, what, that, what you know, uses, yeah. Like what uses it as a point to like insist that like, well, that there's not any hard proof that he was aware of anything that was illegal at a certain point. You do have to like use uh, a little bit of, I don't know, critical intuition 
to yeah, look at and that. Like, and are all like, the people who were like materially, you know, connected to this net with this financial network, are they not in some way like complicit, like, you know, in the money laundering and the drug trafficking, you know, like that is yes. like, so yeah, the whole, the, like the bars of conspiracy can always like be shifted and it's just like, yeah, it can just be used as a pejorative term. Well, people, like, I mean, people will like, say that you know, about Watergate, yeah. which I have a suspicion was like had limited hangouty aspects to it. But, you know, uh, in some of these academic papers I read about where they'll, they'll kind of cite, I slightly disagree with his approach, but they'll cite that Watergate was an example of a conspiracy that was real. So, like, mm-hmm. we obviously shouldn't throw out anything that seems like a conspiracy right away because obviously we have these examples. Um, but, uh, yeah, but 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 I think that that speaks to something that's like significant where uh, Watergate gets moved out of because it got lavishly kind of validated by the media and by the government and by all the authorities and made the president resign, basically, that it gets moved out of this category from all the other potential conspiracies so that this it's like, oh, well, like that was one of the real ones. You know, but like it's like every once in a blue moon, there's like a real conspiracy, which we're going to find out about because then it's going to get totally exposed because our institutions of power are so accountable. And, you know, and and then if you bring up like Iran-Contra, they they might even say that, too. Well, yes, that was a conspiracy, but it was totally exposed. So there's something weird where it's like if the media ignores it, that's enough for a lot of people to write it off. Because like the Franklin scandal, it's like, well, there are only a couple articles written about it. And the New York Times said it was a carefully crafted hoax. So uh, there must not be something there. I think now that the media, maybe a part is that like the media has degraded more, uh, you know, as we've gotten to like 2020, Mm -hmm. that it it has lost the ability to project that sort of... um, epistemological certainty about what's real and what's not you know everyone seems to have like an angle or an agenda there's a lot of bullshit floating around um it's become kind of endemic in the clickbait era but yeah i mean people still like they have this resistance to like thinking yeah that like it's like if if you can prove a conspiracy was real to them that means it wasn't like really a conspiracy not like those other wacky ones that, that kind of thing you know yeah, well, I mean, it goes back to uh, the great uh, philosopher and uh, alien, uh, you know, expert Tom DeLonge, uh, uh, you know, as he said, you know, like, we all know conspiracies are dumb, like, you know, it's tautological <laughs> that conspiracies uh, by their nature are dumb, um, yes. and like, uh, you know, if something is, uh, you know, not dumb, that it's not uh, in that category anymore. And I do think that there almost is, like, some association between, like, uh, you know, when people think of conspiracy theories, they are conditioned. Like, we talked about in our first episode, they are conditioned to think of, like, tinfoil hats yep. and, like, yep. you know... Faraday uh, cages. What's the yeah, matter? Like, Ooh, uh, like, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. something... What yeah, do you that, think? Fluoride's in the water? Um, yeah. You know, um, fluoride's well, I mean, mind control. It is in the water. Fluoride is in the water. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, the question uh, is, like, whether it's harmful or not. Or yeah, is but it mind control? But that is, everybody? like, a funny, like, example of something that you would almost see. Like, oh, okay, like, so you believe there's fluoride in the water? Like, uh, It's like, what did that one Vice yeah. interviewer say to, like, Koopsta Nika? Or the other or the other guy was like, yeah, you like, think wait, the Bilderberg wait, wait, group is real? You believe the Bohemian Club is real? Yeah, like that, yeah. Exactly. It's like that, like uh, that doesn't exist or something, you know, and like I think uh, it's, it's uh, yeah. that that definitely maybe it's changed a little bit. But uh, I think that 
that pose towards uh, that very gawkerish, like vice-ish kind of pose. Well, of, I like, did see mean, that. Uh, I did see that infographic like a little while ago that was like, uh, you know, a, a pyramid of like different conspiracies, like ranking them from like harmless but stupid to like, yes. you know, yeah. somebody was sharing that. Whatever, earlier this you know, year. Like a, yeah, it and, was. Uh, yeah, that was interesting to see a kind of that was like a, a kind of clumsy stab at trying to. It was very uh, gawkerish and it was like some yeah. kind of. I want to say it was a blue check, but it might have just been an aspiring blue check. Uh, I think so. It was like, here's think, my conspiracy chart. Like, you know, it might have uh, been like a TikTok kid, honestly. Like, no, it, was, I, it wasn't a TikTok wasn't. kid. I mean, you know, as much as uh, TikTok kids have their foibles, like trying to shift realities uh, by listening subliminals on YouTube to go date Draco Malfoy. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, I, I was reading up on the, the new trend of shifting realities today and I saw like, uh, some, you know, like white TikTok teen, uh, talking about how she was going to manifest, uh, her, in her desired reality that she would have a, a WAP. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it was, oh, but, uh, no, anyway, uh, that, that's either here nor there. Yeah. I think yeah. that it was like, you know, a real, like, uh, sort of, uh, upwardly mobile, uh, you know, millennial uh, cringe person who came up with the the conspiracy something chart. Uh, something to print out and pass around the BuzzFeed office. Yeah, exactly. It seemed like it was ready for like BuzzFeed article. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I guess and you did make a TikTok about it. But okay, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's just the it that that has been pervasive for so long. Yeah, and, she uh, has a Patreon. Um, oh, okay. You know, wow. she makes educational videos, and you can download a PDF of the conspiracy chart. Um, yeah, not as <laughs> compelling a conspiracy chart as Mark Lombardi's. Definitely uh, not. Definitely yeah, we have not. Uh, grounded um, in reality include yeah some real ones: COINTELPRO, uh, Operation Mockingbird, NSA mass surveillance, Big Tobacco lied about cancer, uh, Nerira testimony. Okay, uh, FBI spied on John Lennon. Of all the people to note, the FBI spied on. Yeah, like, you know, John as Lennon. being real. Like, what about uh, Martin Luther King? Uh, uh, you know, a, like he was uh, a Tavistock. He was like a Tavistock. That's MK Ultra who comes project quite like, readily well, to mind. Uh, yeah, yeah, MK yeah. Ultra is down here, and the Bohemian Club. Those are under things that actually happened. Um, yeah, and then we have questions. Uh, the speculation line is Epstein didn't kill himself. We got Roswell here. We got UFOs. We got Area Fifty One. Again, like I feel like there's a lot of like, um, like there's a lot of redundancy in Roswell UFOs and Area Fifty One. Yeah, um, and all but, of those, I don't know if I'd put them on the same line as, like, Epstein didn't kill himself. Like, you're saying, like, potentially that there are aliens flying around is the same as, like, this pedophile billionaire got whacked yeah, in jail. Denver like, International Airport is also here, which is, like, weird, because, like, what about Denver International Airport? Because the conspiracies around Denver International Airport really run the gamut. Same with yeah. Area 51. Like, Area 51 is definitely a place. Like, it yes. is real. Like, the yeah. question is, like, are there UFOs there? Which I feel like then is, like, fully redundant. So, again, not very a lot of thought put into this yes uh yes and then we're okay so this doesn't make any sense to me what we're leaving reality ufos are you know in the speculation line where it's like we have questions then alien abductions are leaving reality but i feel like if you know like if one is true potentially then yeah mm, i don't know circles are also leaving reality which i feel like is yeah not a lot of thought put into this um, again, we have redundancy where we have Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, and cryptids in the same category. I also feel like you can't group all cryptids together, you know? Like, it's certainly not Probably all true. cryptids are equally plausible, right? 
Um, we'll find out the, in, in due yeah, time. Yeah. Also, when we do it's, an borderline, it's it's borderline. It's uh, borderline Western uh, epistemologically imperialist to deny Bigfoot, but uh, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Science denial is jet fuel doesn't melt still beams. 5G. Okay. Uh, yeah. That. Like, so UFOs are more likely than nanothermite charges. doesn't exist. Uh, is on the same. Yeah. Um, it does. Also, I feel like COVID nineteen made in the lab and Finland doesn't exist. Like, COVID nineteen made in the lab, I feel like has even got a little bit of MSM or you know mainstream media play. Like at least like in a Chinese lab. Like sure. I oh yeah, yeah. As long yeah. as it's a Chinese. So lab, to put that on the same. On the, yeah, exactly. So to put that on the same bar as Finland doesn't exist, something I've never heard anyone say. But like, also government made diseases like. Is yeah. on the same line, period, as COVID made in the lab. Like, uh, you yeah, know, maybe there's never uh, been a government made disease. Uh, yeah, uh, doubt. It, like, what about <clears throat> what about smallpox? Uh, what about, you know, what about some, AIDS? I mean, I guess they didn't make it, but they instrumentalized um, it. Um, but yeah, uh, yes, right, um, of course. Yeah. And then, of course, George Soros is in the, uh, you know, get help uh, dangerous category. category. When you believe one, you believe most. Which is funny because it says uh, George Soros and Hollow Earth and Satanic Cult Panic or all that. Like, I feel like if you believe, wow. if you if you like, you know, are like a George Soros person, I feel like you don't necessarily believe in the Hollow Earth or in a Mars slave colony. Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Like, uh, and if so you believe that maybe imagine, there's a little more. Imagine selling this and looking for Patreon money for this. I mean, as oh. someone who does like look for Patreon money, like uh, I just find that. Uh, not acceptable uh and i feel like they just didn't put enough work in uh you know i feel yeah. like not to brag but i feel like the et super civilization at the heart of the milky way galaxy right now trying to comprehend like humans who are less than an ant yeah. to me uh when i look at that chart uh, so yeah that's kind of one of, of the tangents we said that we weren't we're gonna avoid but uh i think maybe it's an interesting juxtaposition if you want to uh, uh compare uh these you know very like compelling fascinating artistically rich uh conspiracy charts with like the dumbest thing that i've ever seen in yes my life. that like uh, you know exist yeah. with this like this kind of like it, this charged ambiguity that that has intention to it but also invites you to kind of um draw your own inferences to some extent and like facilitate critical thinking and reflection and yeah. all these things on like both a meta level and on the actual level of like what you're seeing in terms right. of these connections. Okay, Mark. Uh, I think we got a pretty good look. All right. Think anybody's gonna come along and shoot you uh, in the back of the skull tonight? Uh, no, I mean, uh, you know, uh, actually, I'll tell you, I have been asked that question before. What did you uh, say? Well, I guess my line on it is that. What? All the there's nothing on any of the charts that I cannot substantiate with a published a major published source. And the way that I can do that, if someone were to ask me, what does this connection mean, or are you sure about that? All I have to do is pick up the card. These are biographies, and these are corporate biographies, right? Here's a Norwegian shipping firm, Gearbulk, which was part of the Iraq uh, Grain Export Network. Okay, but I'm Frankie so somebody Susan, like Gearbulk. I'm Frankie Susan's nephew, and I don't care if it's true or not. Right. Okay, so the people who have written the stories 
that I get my I derive my information from are still walking around. Now, in a few minor instances, there have been journalists assassinated. It has happened. Um, a minor but, but I'm not I'm not introducing new information uh, that could get anyone indicted or in trouble. That's the Everything part. I'm using has already been the scariest part is it's all public information. It's all public information. I am just reprocessing it. I am rearranging it in a, a visual format that's meaningful to me. That's basically what I'm doing. Um, I, I'm certainly thrilled that other people want to look at it as well. But I, I do it essentially for myself. Um, this is one way in which I can map uh, the kind of the, the political and the social terrain, you know, in which I live. talked about like the art world context and the epistemology of conspiracy theories and all that stuff and Mark Lombardi's like general bio um I thought now we could dive into the second half of Interlock uh where Patricia Goldstone tries to assemble some kind of coherent narrative or flesh out a coherent a more traditional narrative from uh, the interlock drawings of Mark Lombardi. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and I think the most um, <clears throat> the most interesting, she goes in a lot of directions. I think she covers a lot of ground. Um, I see what you mean that uh, maybe the first half of the book feels a little bit more, like, uh, I don't know, in, incisive and erudite, like, in, you know, assessing the whole art world and stuff, and this is a little bit more... Um, suppositional, I guess, mm, and yeah. and also it, it gets into the territory of stuff that Mark Lombardi himself maybe did not directly include in his interlocks, but um, but these are narratives that are related nonetheless and have a lot of the same characters involved. But uh, the most the most interesting one, basically, that I'm going to read right now is is basically the idea of the Black Eagle Trust. And, um, and yeah, Goldstone tries to lay out basically a, uh, a narrative. So, <clears throat> so here we go. What Lombardi apparently did not know when he executed his first drawing sometimes in the late 1980s was that the center of the narrative was a dragon's hoard of imperial Japanese treasure hidden by the emperor's commanding officers from advancing American forces. Reconcealed in the Philippines at the end of World War II in a, in a unique collaboration between high U.S. Army officials and Japanese gangsters, the immense stash, almost sufficient to finance another world war, often seemed cursed for the cruelty and corruption it inspired. It became seed money for a covert fund for global Cold War operations known as the Black Eagle Trust. In 1999, in the last months of his life, Lombardi began moving toward that discovery with the execution of two, uh, two drawings— 
Bishop, Baldwin, Dillingham, Rewald, and Wong, and George Bush, Jackson, Stevens, and Harkin Energy circa 1979-1990 that both depict elements of the financial network of deposed Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos and his rapacious wife Imelda. In order to fully understand what is in Lombardi's drawings, it is perhaps best to start with the missing information those drawings begin to represent. In Gold Warriors, their definitive work on the Black Eagle Trust, published three years after Mark Lombardi's death, former Time staffers Sterling and Peggy Seagrave document their final months of World War II, in which Japanese General Tomoyuki Yamashita fought a delaying action in the inhospitable mountains of Luzon. Several of Japan's imperial princes availed themselves the opportunity to bury tons of gold bullion and other treasure looted from 12 Asian countries under the auspices of a Yakuza overlord, Yoshio Kodama, who was conveniently awarded the rank of Rear Admiral for wartime services. The Japanese fully expected to retain the Philippines in whatever war settlement was concluded, and the princes oversaw the construction of 175 subterranean treasure vaults throughout the islands. In June 1945, with American troops less than 20 miles from strategic victory at Bombang, Yamashita and the princes threw a celebration for the 175 chief engineers of the vaults, but slipped out before entombing them alive with the secret of the tunnels they had built. On September 2nd, General Yamashita surrendered to face war crimes charges and the possibility of torture by U.S. Army intelligence forces. Because Yamashita himself could not be tortured without building a case for his defense attorneys, the officers turned their attention to his driver, Major Kashi Kojima. They focused their inquisition on information on the dispersal of the treasure, known poetically as the Golden Lily, which had been photographed in transit by U.S. Army personnel. William Kasha was a Manila-based lawyer on General MacArthur's staff who was privy to the reconcealment of the treasure under the auspices of the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. Eventually, much of the fortune in gold, jewels, and antiquities was to end up in the hands of Ferdinand Marcos, the U.S.-installed Philippine dictator who shared much, though not all, of it with the CIA. Kasha served as an advisor not only to the Marcoses, but also to Nugent Bank of Sydney, Australia, Another CIA enterprise that Lombardi depicted and which was the precursor to BCCI. Kasha's son, Alan, a New York-based investment banker and lawyer who rescued George W. Bush's struggling oil company in 1986, is considered by insiders to be one of the chief masterminds of the Republican Party today, with an outsized influence on the entire Bush family. In a foreboding mix of metaphors, the Golden Lily Treasure became the Black Eagle Trust, a secret fund organized by President Roosevelt's closest advisors, Secretary of War Henry Stimson, Robert Lovett, later Secretary of Defense, John McCloy, later head of the World Bank, chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank, and chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, and Robert B. Anderson, later Treasury Secretary. The purpose of the fund was to finance covert political action worldwide. Out of these four wise men, credited as architects of the post-war world and not coincidentally of the Cold War, two, Lovett and Anderson, were Texans and close associates of the Bush family. Stimson, a Wall Street attorney who set up a special brain trust to study the future of plunder even while the war was still raging, proposed using all recovered Axis loot, Nazi, fascist, and Japanese, to finance a global political action fund to fight the Cold War that was, even before the hot war ended, already chilling relations between the USSR and its erstwhile allies. A promising young protege of Anderson's, Clark Clifford, advised the future Treasury Secretary on the prevention of Axis looting. Anderson's and Clifford's illustrious careers were to end in disgrace in the late 80s and 90s when their connections to the global money laundry were revealed. 
Okay, so the, now we get, we're talking numbers here. How much did they get, allegedly? The numbers involved in the Black Eagle Trust were staggering. The Japanese war gold alone has been conservatively estimated at $44 billion in 1944 dollars. This could be worth as much as $178 trillion today, depending on the basis of calculation. The figure of $178 trillion is calculated by the mathematical formula for interest rate compounding, which, which states that investment doubles every seven years, compounded at an annual return rate of 10%. Another calculation based on the NYU Stern School of Business chart on annual returns on stocks, treasury bonds, and treasury notes from 1928 to the present projects a stock investment worth 225 dollars in 1945 would be worth $289,995 in 2014, uh, which means that a $44 billion investment in 1945 would be worth approximately $56 trillion in 2014. Some sources put the original estimate of the Japanese war gold as high as $100 billion. Uh, to give an idea of what these figures mean, total military U.S. military spending at the height of World War II between 1943 and 44 has been estimated at 41% of U.S. GNP, which stood at approximately $132 billion, uh, or approximately $54.12 billion. Um, so basically, in ordering the sequestration of this treasure, Roosevelt advisors put away the lion's share of the budget for a future global war. While official Washington figures for recovered Nazi gold eventually added to the pot come in at, quote, only 550 tons, senior CIA sources put it closer to 11,200 tons, over twice that amount. Um, and none of these figures, however, are hard ones due to both market fluctuation and the largely unknown level of withdrawals from the funds used for waging covert wars for the last 70 years. Um, and I guess it, she argues that it is highly probable that knowledge of the sheer magnitude of this stash of hot money provided the accelerant for the rapid escalation of the Cold War. In 1947, real military spending hit its post-war low, post low of $10 billion, 4.3% of GDP. Um, and in the eyes of at least certain officials, like the ardently anti-communist Frank Wisner, who was then at the State Department, relations with the Soviet Union were already deteriorating. Main Street had other priorities. The Republicans had gained control of Congress in November 1946 by promising a return to normalcy, not an assumption of Britain's imperial role. As Professor of Political Economy Robert Higgs notes, to convince the public, and thereby Congress, of the need for additional spending, administration officials needed a crisis. General Lucius D. Clay, military high commissioner in Berlin, who had collaborated with Wisner and Senator Herbert Lehman in creating the Crusade for Freedom that features prominently in the Texas politics of this narrative, was happy to create one. In 1948, when communists took over the Czech government, Clay scared Truman into approving more than $3 billion in supplementary defense appropriations by advising that war between uh, that war between the United States and the Soviets could begin quote with dra dramatic suddenness. However, even three billion seemed paltry in comparison to the forty-four billion that floated, completely unaccountable for quote security reasons offshore. Um, Henry Stimson's logic was that because it would be difficult, if not impossible, to sort out the rightful owners of all the loot, better to keep its recovery under wraps and set up a secret trust, the Black Eagle, to help, quote, friendly, i.e. anti-communist governments, get into and stay in power after the war. The hard figure support what appears to be the wildest of conspiracy theories. According to the sources of the two authorities in the subject, 
former Time staffers Peggy and Sterling Seagrave, the Black Eagle Trust could only be set up with the cooperation of the most powerful industrial, political, and banking families in Europe and America, including the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, and the Harrimans. To anyone with a modicum of financial sophistication, let alone the most ingenious of the robber barons, such a virtually bottomless pool of unaccountable tax-free funds would represent a very powerful temptation, powerful enough to render personal ideology irrelevant. Between 1945 and 1947, much of Yamashita's, quote, sleeping bullion was spirited out of the Philippines and into the vaults of some of the world's biggest banks, where it became an asset base for patronage. It was a brilliant way to conduct business as well as politics. Um, okay, so we can stop right there, because I think, hmm, okay. That, yeah. That, that is the supposed... Um, uh, genesis of what would later become the enterprise if you will um right yeah oliver north's so-called enterprise you know allegedly yeah allegedly my my thing about the yamashita's gold as i said like before we started recording uh is that well i just felt that maybe i had a little bit of disappointment because this was sort of hyped up to me as a thing that was going to prove Yamashita's gold, but I was disappointed <laughs> that, like, the Yamashita's gold thing isn't actually in any of the drawings of Mark Lombardi. And that is yes. kind of like, yes, of course, like, naturally, like, these financial networks are real, and so then, like, supervening a story about Yamashita's gold onto them, like, will, you know, make sense, but you know, or we'll have, like, some kind of skeleton for it, but, like, that's not actually, like, in you know, none of that stuff about Yamashita's gold, like, or the Black Eagle Trust, like, you know, he did, like, offer explanations of the networks that he charted, like, you, you know, he did say things about them, and he never, like, mentioned or alluded to this, so there's no real, like, indication. The idea is, like, it, I mean, it's interesting in a way that you could take this information and then be like, oh, well, this is confirmation of Yamashita's gold, uh, but I don't necessarily know if it fundamentally is. Uh, well, I, I, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to push back a little bit because mm-hmm. I think uh, for one, as uh, as she does note in the beginning that he was just starting to pursue these leads in the final months leading up to his death. I'm not saying that like that's why they got him because uh, he was. Well, he pursuing but the leads of Yamashita's gold he was you I, know. I be- or the Black Eagle Trust essentially I think she does she does say that um well she might <clears> say <throat> that but he wasn't actually looking into it like or there's no evidence that he was she says that it is possible though not documented in either his files or his extensive bibliography that he so which basically means like he it isn't true that he was aware of a series of articles on the Japanese gold recoveries written in 1975 by columnist Jack Anderson, who himself played a role in the story and whose sons John and Scott published a 1986 book Inside the League on one of the Black Eagle conduits, the World Anti-Communist League. Um, mm-hmm. So what he okay, did do... I, I, okay, yeah, was I, he, she, yeah. He she did, says in, in 1999, in the last months of his life, Lombardi began moving toward that discovery with the execution of two yeah. drawings. But I guess that that's a little bit, I guess, moving toward that yeah, discovery and like, is not the same It is true as, that, like, Ferdinand Marcos and Imelda Marcos are super corrupt and, like, totally in bed with, like, you know, very uh, corrupt, like, uh, international forces, uh, particularly in the United States. 
and involved in like the larger enterprise of Iran Contra and other such things. But uh, like the idea that their wealth comes from Yamashita's gold, like you know that isn't like you know I'm not necessarily saying that that's like not true. Like I get, I mean it could be, but like there's not really like proof of that in this. Like there's definitely proof of these. Like William Quashwa, he is named there, you know, in the in the documents. Yes. Like the connections between them and uh, he is in the George Bush Harkin energy thing, but yeah, you know, I mean, so many people in, and also it, the, the the other thing I would say is that um, though I think if anybody would have been qualified to discover this angle uh, before he died, it, it would have been Mark Lombardi. But the main book that was referenced here, Gold Warriors, I think came out in like 2004, so it came out several years after his death. So it was still a relatively uh, it, it hadn't quite popped up and nobody had, you know, uh, gone and kind of done a lot of this like original research to get little tidbits of this narrative. I have a feeling like Mark so, Lombardi had I... read Gold Warriors. He would have looked at, oh, look, all of the people that are in all of my interlocks are in this story. Um, but I, I, would, it... I would imagine that the reason why all the people who are in his interlocks are in Gold Warriors is because they were in his interlocks uh, beforehand. Do you think, uh, I, I don't know yes. um, the Seagraves, uh, whether or not they used his interlocks as uh, research I think material. that they, yeah, I think that they may have actually uh, been fans of Mark Lombardi. Um, but, uh, you know, they have used the term interlock to like kind of talk well, about their research. But what, I mean, the, regardless, like, you know, I think that like what I'm saying is that those networks, like those connections are real. The, yes. the question, but the thing is, like, they still function and they still exist whether or not like there is gold. And to be fair, like the idea of Yamashita's gold is not something that like they like, you know, that has, that has existed before. Um, you know, like that's an old story, especially in the Philippines. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, for uh, sure. Well, I mean, if you look at it, it on its face, it seems bizarre. Why is, why was Ferdinand Marcos so wealthy? You know, uh, the Philippines was not a particularly wealthy country either before or during or after Marcos's rule. And then you have all of these uh, figures like William Kasha and like General Ed Lansdale, um, people working for MacArthur that were all stationed in the Philippines at that time. And then you, we, we do know, I mean, the, both the Japanese and the Nazis plundered uh, considerably the countries that they, you know, had... Uh, had invaded and occupied and there's always been rumblings about you know looted nazi gold and swiss bank vaults and things of that nature and i don't know um i i don't know exactly like the extent of it but um it doesn't seem implausible at all that people in the government and business um at the end of world war ii you know basically track down some of this stolen loot and instead of like redistributing it to all the countries that have been stolen from uh they decide to requisition it and use it as a private uh slush fund to you know launch like anti-soviet anti-communist operations and like prepare for it now the thing i will say is that that i'm i'm kind of with you on in terms of being a little shaky is the idea that this thing would be trillions of dollars today and that they would have had throughout the whole the whole cold war had this like slush fund of trillions of dollars like even though i'm not even saying like that would be impossible 
to hide. Um, but that that's a pretty big leap in terms of like the economic policies pursued in the post-war yeah. uh, period don't seem to be, I feel like if they had had this secret, you know, sack of gold under the table that they could just keep, like, I, I could see it on a smaller scale, I guess is what I'm saying, where this was like something you could use to like bribe people overseas or maybe like funnel some money into, um, you know, in, into companies uh, and prop up dictator, you know, right wing dictators and, uh, you know, finance uh, counterinsurgencies, things like that. Um, but yeah. for it to be because we know we've already talked before about like the the prevalence of of CIA drug trafficking in both right. the Golden Triangle, which is connected to Lombardi's work like uh, mm-hmm. Nugent Hand uh, was. Yeah, it was like laundering CIA heroin money coming out of Laos. And so it seems a little contradictory if they had access to this much capital, like this massive amount of capital, um, that they would be getting involved with the drug cartels and running drug operations, unless the drugs were really more seen as like a weapon against populations than like an economic thing to make money. I mean, Goldstone even says, like, at one point, like, you know, that they needed more money. Like, at, you know, it wasn't, like, the Black Eagle Trust, like, wasn't enough, which is, like, really, you know, that's, like, kind of the sticking point that it's, like, this, there's just, like, this kind of, you know, and, like, uh, generally, like, you know, I uh, can get down with sort of the flights of, of fancy and, like, kind of the whimsical stuff, but, like, the whole idea of, like, this lost hoard of treasure, like, there's kind of, like, a... A fantastical element to it that like just seems out of step with like the more like kind of hard-nosed uh work that's like being you know like uh i i, I have no I know you've doubt never it, you yeah. you've never liked the amashita's gold theory even years ago when i brought it up to you yeah well uh, no 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 you, well that's like you've always had a bias against it because i think it sounds like an indiana jones movie or something i mean it perhaps. does sound like an indiana <laughs> jones movie uh and like, <laughs> while i have absolutely no doubt that like and it's definitely true that like the united states looted like you know resources from other countries during world war ii like yeah well the whole thing of like well the original yamashita's gold theory as you presented it to me was like you know all tied up in like the bonds the illegal bonds that were about to come due and that necessitated yes. 9-11 which is you know, mentioned so that's a whole which is mentioned in this in this section of the book it does bring that up uh, like uh, an even more like disturbing theory uh it, it floats the idea it doesn't really follow it um though there is a connection that both the 9-11 like collateral damage project hammer theory and mark lombardi or, or Patricia Goldstone's reading of Mark Lombardi have in common, which is uh, Patricia Goldstone seems pretty convinced that these hot money networks uh, basically persisted and then culminated in the huge financial collapse of 2008. And that's mm-hmm. something that, like, the Project Hammer theory actually... I don't think we talked about that in the 9-11 episode, but it had a whole nother section of, of like, post-9-11, how like they needed to launder all the money that they had like illegally pushed through the fed or whatever. Mm -hmm. So then they had to funnel it into derivatives and like real estate bubble. And then they planned to basically control demo the stock market when the wheels started to come off. Um, They basically controlled demoed it, I think maybe through Lehman brothers and AIG, which many people have said is like a sort of a CIA front um, 
kind of like Enron. And basically then they like cratered the economy, uh, but were able to like make out like bandits anyways. And then of course Wall Street got bailed out and then everyone else, uh, you know, took a huge blow, uh, the vast majority of the population. And, um, we've been muddling Um, along in austerity ever since. So that, that's, um, I wouldn't rule that out. Like these networks, like somehow I'm not saying that like, okay, yeah, that's why they crashed the plane into like, uh, Canter right, Fitzgerald, those specific but, offices. Yeah, yeah, but like the uh, well, idea that that Mark Lombardi's money networks that he traced here have like metastasized and morphed and like existed and maybe um, maybe they have had systemic effects upon the economy. I mean, I think if you look at like the savings and loan uh, crisis and the stock market crash in 1987, um, I. It, I'd have to go, like, I have a couple books that I haven't read yet about, like, the nitty-gritty, but, like, that is a subject of Lombardi's uh, interlocks at various points, was, like, Silverado Savings and Loan, which yeah, was uh, sure. and Neil all Bush sorts worked of, like, for. Yeah, like, uh, financial institutions collapsing, like... Yeah, uh, all around know, the country. Harpin um, Energy is a great example, you know, like, whether, yeah. like, even if you leave, I think that Goldstone points to that as being, like, something to do with Yamashita's gold, but, like, on its own, like, uh, you know, uh, in this uh, other book, which I think does a little bit of a better job in terms of analyzing, like, the paintings, like, not like, a, or the, sorry, the drawings, and not really, like, doing uh, too much uh, to kind of, or, or you know, not uh, reading quite as much into it, uh, you know, there's still, like, a, a lot going on there, like, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the Harkin Energy one, they write, uh, during Bush's first year at Harkin, Members of the company's board asked Little Rock investment banker Jackson Stevens, whose family owns the country's 10th largest brokerage firm, to arrange a $25 million stock purchase by Union Bank of Switzerland, a deal that took place the following year. Part of the deal included placing, Harkin's on, placing on Harkin's board Sheikh Abdullah Taha Baksh, whose investment partner, partners included important Saudi shareholders and the notorious Karachi Bank, Karachi-based Bank of Credit and Commerce International, known more familiarly by its acronym BCCI, which, like, is the subject of uh Lombardi's most magisterial drawing of all which is like yes. this incredible web but uh Harkin's finances were so shaky in 1988 that it sought the aid of the Bass brothers or the Bass brothers to advance it uh 50 million I read that as Bass nevertheless the small firm which had neither drilled for oil or gas outside Texas Louisiana and Oklahoma nor drilled offshore entered into discussion with Bahrain officials after that nation's negotiations with Amoco for a gas and oil exploration contract had broken down in 1989. News reporters were incredulous to learn of this, and rumors, of course, as always, and rumors regarding the role the presidency of Bush Sr. might have played in the Middle Eastern country's sudden interest in this comparatively unimportant oil drilling outfit were voiced but never proven. The surprise among the media is understandable in view of the anticipated riches from Bahrain's offshore reserves, situated between the world's largest oil field, which is in Saudi Arabia, and the largest natural gas field off Qatar's beaches. In 1989, Bahrain awarded uh, exclusive off short drilling rights to Harkin Energy, and the company's stock price quickly jumped from uh, $450 to $550 a share, as though Harkin's future prospect appeared, although Harkin's future prospects appeared incredibly promising, sorry, I keep misreading everything, the company was suffering from insufficient cash flow. In the spring of 1990, Bush was appointed to the company's three-member audit committee and worked closely with financial advisors from Smith Barney, Harris, Upham, and Company, uh, who concluded in May that only a substantial, uh, only substantial infusions of funds, I think that's a typo on their part, would save Harkin since it owed more than $150 million to banks and other creditors. In June, Harkin drilled two dry wells in Bahrain, 
on June 11th, Butch participated in discussions about how restructuring the company might affect its outstanding shares. And on June 22nd, he, sh- he sold uh, 212,104 shares of Hark Energy stock at $4 a share for a total of, wow, uh, $848,560, making a 200% profit. In August, Iraqi troops invaded Kuwait, and after Harkin restated its earnings downward on August 20th, declaring a second quarter loss of $23.2 million, Harkin shares plummeted across uh, 40% and then went as low as $1 per share. Although Securities and Exchange Commission regulations dictate that Bush should have reported the sale of Harkin stocks by July 10th, the sale was not recorded by the SEC until the first week of March 1991, after the Gulf War was over. Despite Bush's later claims that he reported the sale in a timely manner, the SEC never found documents corroborating his statement. Because of this discrepancy in Bush's strategic role on Harkin Energy's audit committee prior to the sale of his stocks, he has been suspected of insider trading. Of Lombardi's delineation of Bush's activities articulated in three horizontal timelines— uh, Arbusto Energy, Spectrum 7 Oil, and Harkham Energy. It concludes with the year 1990 and the figure uh, 848K, together with the notation July 1990, Bush bails out with profit. Two weeks later, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. So you can wow. definitely see like how these like financial dealings like have like a consequences well. It's amazing. After, like, yeah, I mean, it's amazing that both Neil Bush and George W. Bush like were involved in huge financial scandals in their businesses while their dad was vice president and president. And I feel like was that even a scandal in the early nineties? I guess it was a slight one, but it wasn't. Something else that I learned from Mark Lombardi's drawing was that there was a similar thing to Russiagate with China involving Bill Clinton. Uh, yeah, that there kind of was. There, there was. Yeah. That was a popular, um, I think it might have even been Billy Million Hitchcock who kind of launched like a crusade against the Clintons in the 90s. It was somebody like that. Or maybe it was Richard Mellonscape. Sorry, I got my melons mixed up. I think it was mm-hmm. Richard Mellonscape who had like, kind of like declared his own like subliminal jihad on the Clintons for some reason, but also, I don't know, maybe in a kind of like birthery kind of way, kind of like <laughs> confuse things a little bit. Like the real thing is that Clinton was, uh, as I saw somebody just post on the discord, um, Clinton was pro was an agent of operation chaos. According to one book in the nineties, um, mm-hmm. he was a CIA informant who was recruited at, uh, when he was a Rhodes scholar. And of course, everything he did in Mina in the eighties. And, you know, so saying that like, Oh, he's a Chinese, he's a puppet of like, uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping or something like that. <laughs> um, became like the, the kind of the top conservative thing to say about him. Um, as opposed to this guy is like an opportunistic, uh, you know, like a Pete Buttigieg basically. Um, and like similar things with Obama. Um, but if you, I, I think maybe to shed some light, um, on maybe why the Bushes are just so cavalier about all of this. Goldstone goes back to, um, the very end of world war two and like John McCloy, Frank Wisner, and the Bush family. So I just want to read, like, you know, what like what was George W.'s grandfather like uh, in this whole world? Do you have anything to do with it? Well, so after the war, John McCloy became German High Commissioner, uh, and along with Frank Wisner, future head of the CIA's Dirty Tricks Division, the Office of Policy Coordination, and Alan Dulles, controlled the records pertinent to the investment banking firm of Brown Brothers Harriman, where Prescott Bush had maintained his Nazi clientele. 
Nelson Rockefeller subsequently invited McCloy to become a partner in the Rockefeller family law firm that became Milbank, Hadley, Tweed, and McCloy, and where his most important client was the Rockefeller family bank, Chase Manhattan. Lovett became chairman of the eponymous 1945 Committee Advising the U.S. Government on the Post-War Reorganization of American Intelligence Activities, which led to the creation of the CIA. Upon being called back to government to serve as Undersecretary of State, Lovett was instrumental in the establishment of NATO, the Western military enforcement arm of the Cold War in Europe. Edwin S. Pauley, a major right-wing oil player with a long intelligence relationship, whom Truman appointed to head the Commission on German and Japanese Reparations, which ignored sloppy record-keeping about recovered gold and brushed aside questions of hidden Japanese assets, was closely linked to the Texas oil interests of Robert B. Anderson's father, Robert O. Anderson. And recent scholarship suggests that Pauley's appointment was the fruit of efforts to protect oil investments in Europe and the Far East on the part of industry magnates such as Clint Murchison and H. Hunt. Another source of expert guidance was Prescott Bush, George H.W. Bush's father, who also appears as a tangent to the axis of the enterprise in Lombardi's Iran-Contra drawing. Bush's covert work in setting up front banks and hiding large financial transactions for Hitley's Hitler's wealthy industrialist supporters through Brown Brothers Harriman gave him exactly the expertise needed by the CIA to conceal its operations from the Soviets despite his recent history of friction with the executive branch. Bush had a history of servicing America's enemies for commercial rather than ideological reasons. In 1926, he became the American banker for Fritz Tyson, Hitler's largest single industrial supporter in Germany, through an elaborate money laundering operation funneled through the supposedly American-controlled United Banking Corporation, actually a front for a number of German nationals, under the auspices of Bush's father-in-law, Burt Walker, president of Harriman Brothers. Walker brought Bush into the investment bank in 1926 and put him in charge of UBC. Bush oversaw UBC's German operations from 1926 to 1942, which included managing Tyson's American portfolio at a time when Tyson was contributing over $1.5 million to the Nazi party. In 1942, when ironically Bush was named national campaign chairman of the United Service Organization, uh, Blink-182, uh, <laughs> sus, Bob Hope, sus, um, raised more than $33 million to provide entertainment for U.S. troops fighting the Nazis. President Roosevelt authorized an investigation into UBC under the Trading with the Enemy Act. The alien property custodian issued a devastating report and confiscated all of UBC's stock. Bush's, Bush turned his considerable energies toward advising the elite Directorate of Plans, the most subversive division in the new CIA. The Directorate of Plans was to become the Directorate of Operations and Ted Shackley's bailiwick. At Brown Brothers Harriman, Bush also worked with Alan Dulles, who was to head the CIA and immediately after World War II ran his own anti-communist private intelligence service out of his Wall Street office, using bankers and businessmen from Prescott Bush's network who worked with the Nazis before the war. Prescott Bush's father-in-law, George Burt Walker, who founded the St. Louis investment firm G.H. Walker & Co. in 1900, served as president of what became Brown Brothers Harriman in 1920. In the late 1940s, Brown Brothers became a cover for CIA operations that found previous Nazi connections and asset in the fight against communism. Oh, and also, because, you know, we're talking about the biggest drug lord family in America... 
In addition to his banking career, Bush, a board member and investor in Pan American World Airways, arranged for the CIA to use overseas Pan Am offices as cover and was involved in setting up Maverick Air Force General Claire Chenault's Flying Tiger Airlines and Civil Air Transport, a CIA proprietary that became known for ferrying drugs from the Golden Triangle to finance anti-communist insurgencies for Chiang Kai-shek. Bush also used his influence to help his friend William Pauley, a former Pan Am executive who undertook secret operations for the OSS in China, to, to promote the interests of the pro-Republican Chiang Kai-shek, uh, quote, China lobby. G.H. Um, Walker & Co. would eventually become part of the toxic investment conglomerate Merrill Lynch, R.I.P., which, as we shall see, had a history of CIA money laundering leading back to Rome in the 1950s. The leading underwriter of the subprime mortgage-based collateralized debt obligations that brought down global financial markets in 2008, Merrill Lynch was acquired by Bank of America in 2009 after being sued for fraud by the SEC. Six of his executives were also convicted in 2004 for helping Enron execute its massive accounting fraud, another Bush connection. Merrill Lynch & Co. ceased to exist as such soon after it finally merged into the Bank of America Corporation in 2013, although the bank's wealth management division still uh, carries its name. So, yeah, I mean, Bush, going back to Prescott, was, like, advising the government on the very creation of the CIA and creating NATO, and he was an expert at money laundering for Nazis. <laughs> yes. Um, and... Uh had the 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 absolute and was of course like close with a very you know bosom buddies <clears throat> business partners really with Alan Dulles at Brown Brothers Harriman and um and uh was involved yeah and uh so i mean when you look at it that way um George H W Bush trafficking cocaine into the country in the 1980s it it, it kind of demystifies it a little bit because he's his father's son mhm I mean, not just in the, oh, he's rapacious and would do anything uh, to make money or win or he's willing to break the law, but like, you know, literal drug trafficking with Nazis. Uh, it it seems more and more like George H.W. Bush, you know, inherited it. He succeeded to a role that had kind of been established by his father. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's a generational Satanist. I mean, um, I mean, you yeah. said it, not me. <laughs> Um, um, but, uh, <laughs> I went down to the Mary Carter paint store. I said, Give me one of them Smith and Wesson Magnum 44s. Cause there's a man that the law let me. And justice was not done This man killed my wife And my only little son I'll never forget the way He looked all through the trial He had his big name lawyer And he had that smirky smile Well, yeah I got rights I 
I will give you something there that, you know, they're talking about, you know, ferrying drugs from the Golden Triangle to finance anti-communist insurgencies for Chiang Kai-shek. There, again, kind of brings up the a little bit of um, contradiction with the idea that they would have had $44 billion adjusted for inflation, you know, trillions basically today. If they had that yeah. much money, why go to the risk of trafficking drugs um now that's not to say they didn't have any money like maybe you know this is like the seed capital basically for all these covert operations to kind of like grease the wheels and like get them going but it's not like um you still you don't want to like if it wasn't enough that maybe they didn't want to erode the principle that they had stashed away you know or or it was risky to move it i mean america definitely made money off of world war ii like that's like pretty much a historical fact uh but like and, uh, every and war those organizations uh, Viet- yeah Vietnam exactly as well. yeah, yeah. As, as smedley butler said war is a racket uh yep. and like uh the you know but i think that in terms of you know the i certainly don't think that it's true that like you know the only reason why there would be a connection uh to the philippines here is uh that you know there must be some yamashita's gold because i do think that the philippines does have like uh, a geopolitical value and i think that i mean one practical way in which uh the philippines is related as well as like you know iraq uh as well as nicaragua like all these Mm -hmm. places is through the bcci actually like while i was speaking of like kind of what we were talking about conspiracy theories uh, or the term conspiracy theory and uh, while i was looking up the bcci earlier i found this article um uh, from 1991, which is, uh, hold those conspiracy, this is the headline, hold those conspiracy <laughs> theory jokes, BCCI may be the real McCoy, uh, mm. and it's by Steve Daly, oh and he God. says, uh, okay. like millions of my skeptical countrymen and women, I long have snickered at the conspiracy theories among us. Wild talk of evil doing by the shadowy trilateral commission, letter writing Scientologists, followers of Sun and Young Moon. It's funny that the Moonies actually were I, like involved. They in are a conspiracy. Uh, yeah. 
collegiate fun seekers and skull and bones or Soviet moles burrowed inside the American intelligence community kept me changing the channel. Um, but I, my lights, skull and bones, a subterranean society that President Bush joined while at Yale was the province of dull, rich guys. And those who got lathered up by the secret handshake crowd were as easily dismissed as folks who call talk radio programs three nights a week to discuss Elvis Presley's whereabouts. There you go. This is perfect. This is a great uh, yeah. example yeah. of exactly what we were talking about. Like we go Elvis from like the trilateral commission to like Elvis being alive. Yeah. Uh, yeah exactly. You know, like in a uh, second. Anyway. The head, uh, the headlines indicate. I mean, you know, uh, anyway. But the headlines indicate that I've been wrong. Years after critics of the Warren Commission and Yahoo's who trumpeted papal conspiracies have passed in review, along comes the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. Um, you know, uh, he talks about how Time Magazine calls the controversy the first global scandal, uh, etc. But yeah, so uh, lots of people were like wrong. Uh, this lots of you know. Uh, Figures such as Ferdinand Marcos himself, Saddam Hussein, Noriega, obviously, uh, the Medellin drug cartel, um, and yeah, the CIA. Actually, uh, there's a good summary of it, I guess, that uh, Lombardi um, gives. Uh, he well, again, this is the subject of like a like a immense web uh, that he drew, which is really like uh, you know you have to look at it, but it's like absolutely sprawling and huge. It's that really has that panoramic. Uh, feel, but uh, he said, uh, "This is a quote from in the, in the book that I, I reference uh, occasionally." Mm-hmm. The uh, yeah, uh, global networks. Uh, read from left to right, this chart represents the evolution of the BCCI, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, otherwise known as the Bank of Crooks and Criminals, <laughs> a mainly mm-hmm. Arab-owned concern. Uh, a little bit of a Arabophobia, mm. but you know, everyone, yeah. no one likes Khaliji's, so you know, whatever. But anyway, <laughs> a mainly Arab-owned concern founded in 1972 with financial backing from Bank of America, the brainchild of Pakistani banker Aga Hussein Abedi based in Karachi, controlled from Abu Dhabi, incorporated in Luxembourg, and operated from London, Geneva, and the Cayman Islands. It's really amazing. Involved in joint ventures with local banks in Iran, Oman, France, and Switzerland, assets grew from $5 million in 1973 to $23 billion by 1991. By the mid-1980s, had opened offices in 78 countries to serve the needs of nearly 1 million dis- depositors and borrowers, uh, 40,000 of which were in Britain, the bank's largest market in the West, by all appearances, BCCI was a stable and profitable enterprise managed with integrity. But beneath the veneer of legitimacy, BCCI, in conjunction with ICIC, its shadowy, quote, black banking unit found in the Caymans in 1976, plied quite another trade, handling hot, black, and dirty money for a panoply of international gangsters, arms dealers, bagmen, corrupt foreign officials, drug smugglers, tax evaders, money launderers, and agents of influence, not to mention elements of the intelligence services of the U.S., U.K., Pakistan, U.A.E., and Saudi Arabia, which, among other things, used the bank in the early 1980s to provide support to the Afghan Mujahideen fighters, uh, well, Mujahideen fighters, finance parts of the Iran-Contra operation, and funnel bribes to retired Palestinian terrorist Abu Nadal, BCCI also helped launder money for erstwhile allies of the U.S., like Iraq Saddam Hussein and General Manuel Noriega of Panama, and was involved in suspicious multi-million dollar deals with various other heads of state, such as uh, Bagan, I don't even know who this is, Babangida? Babangida of Nigeria. Uh, uh, no offense to Nigerians, uh, who probably this is an important historical figure. Who I, uh, uh, Cerezo of Guatemala, uh, Rajiv Gandhi of India, and Ershad of Bangladesh. The bank's downfall began in 1988 uh, when the U.S. Drug Enforcement uh, officers 
arrested seven mid-level BCCI executives suspected of laundering cash from the for the meddling drug cartel through a branch office in Tampa, Florida. The U.S. Justice Department's lack of enthusiasm for the case and lenient treatment of BCCI upon conviction served to arouse even more interest in the bank. It was then discovered that the BCCI secretly controlled Clark Clifford and Robert Altman's First American Bank, the largest bank in Washington, D.C., through a complex chain of ownership ultimately vested in uh, Credit and Commerce American Holdings and VCCAH, a Netherlands Antilles shell company. By mid-1982, state and federal indictments have been handed down against the bank, its satellites ICIC and CCAH, Abadi, Clifford, Altman, Kamal Adham, Gaith Farhan, Khalid bin Mahfouz, Faisal Fulage, uh, Fulage, and numerous others. Um, Meanwhile, in the UK, Bank of England officials who had long questioned BCCI's financial viability but failed to act because of intimidation by the Thatcher government and concerns about the scale of the problem finally Mm. decided to move against BCCI. In July 1991, an ad hoc college of regulators consisting of officials from the US, UK, France, Spain, Switzerland, Luxembourg, and the Cayman Islands seized the bank in a simultaneous multinational raid, the first of its kind in history. Within weeks of the seizure, examiners found that at least $14 billion had disappeared and was unrecoverable. Thousands of defrauded British depositors then sued to recover their money. Sheikh Zayed of Abu Dhabi, the bank's main power broker and majority shareholder, offered to settle depositors' claims out of court for 30 cents on the dollar. The deal was rejected as insufficient and remains in litigation. In, the early ni- in early 1992, BCCI's surviving Middle East operations were reorganized under a new name, the Oasis Bank of Abu Dhabi. It is no coincidence that the BCCI was founded in September 1972, only two weeks after Palestinian extremists massacred the Israeli Olympic team in Munich, West Germany, and that ICIC, which opened in July 1976, came into being in the midst of a massive congressional investigation over 100, of over 100 U.S.-based multinational corporations suspected of paying multi-million dollar bribes to win contracts and do business overseas, particularly in the Middle East. Nor is it merely coincidental that directors of BCCI, who operated above and beyond the law for almost two decades without interference from any governmental agency, were for the most part drawn from the diplomatic corps and intelligence community. This is because BCCI was specifically created to serve geopolitical rather than commercial ends, to further the regional, political, and national security ambitions of a handful of conservative Gulf Arab states allied to the U.S. and Britain, regardless of cost. Yeah, mm. so that's his mm. statement on on it. So quite a, a sprawling uh, situation. The the intrigues are yeah, just like astounding, bewildering, well, like the depth yeah. of, of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's metastasized into something very big. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know though. I. I I'm I'm looking a little further into this and the the eminence of Marcos and his money trails. Uh, like there's still a little backstory here that apparently th- there are some direct people who claim that this this gold story is true, but it's maybe not the way that it sounded when we first read that that overview. Um, uh-huh. And there are two people connected to the gold story who did uh, basically feature in the BCCI master drawing that was so badly damaged in the flood in his studio in February 2000, one month mm. before his death. And it, that that BCCI drawing, yeah, there was a mysterious flood in his uh, studio apartment uh, the month before right, he died yes. that damaged his, like, master BCCI work, like, encompassing, like, everything you just described. He, he did remake it, though. 
Uh, uh, he did. I guess he remade it. Yeah, but it yeah, was he stayed uh, up for four days to remake it, which was one of the reasons why people were like, "Well, you know, he was tired, so he had to kill um, himself." Yeah, he killed himself. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, but apparently, it contains narrative fragments and hitherto obscure figures essential to the Black Eagle Trust, such as Ryoichi Sasakawa, the future speculator who, with his partner Yakuza boss Yoshio Kodama, founded the World Anti-Communist League. Uh, and William Kasha, the American-born engineer, lawyer, and Masonic leader who established himself in the Philippines after serving as an officer on General MacArthur's staff, where he helped um, allegedly administer um, the secret dispersal uh, of the treasure. Um, And uh, the way in which George Bush Harkin Energy is constructed with the hubs, or nodes, as Lombardi called them, of William Kasha, his son Alan, who is to rescue George W. Bush's Harkin Energy from financial ruin, and the Marcoses themselves forming a vector in the lower left quadrant of the drawing, which appears to trail off the rest of the design, suggests that Lombardi was planning to use these nodes as the connector or starting point of another drawing. Had he lived, that drawing or series of drawings might have mapped the Black Eagle Trust itself, the missing right, hemisphere yeah. and the global totality. Uh, <laughs> of, um, I remember that part. Uh, I mean, there's also Spectrum 7 Oil, like which mysteriously has, like, you know, a... Uh, Marcos is actually, like, a dead end, where but Spectrum 7 Oil actually has an arrow pointing off of it towards, like, nothing. So there may have been more going on here. I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, well, <clears throat> I mean, the other... Um, and all, so does uh, Harkin Energy, actually. They, but I guess maybe these lines just are supposed to represent, like, time. Uh, yeah, and they actually continue to exist. Um, so yeah. maybe they're supposed to be temporal. Uh, although they would be going back in time then. So I guess that does make sense. But, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot here about. Um, it talks about, um, you know, the torture, uh, the torture of Yamashita's driver, Major Kojima, um, was a Filipino American intelligence officer named uh, Severino Garcia Diaz Santa Romana. And Romana was supervised by Ed Lansdale, who was a protege of uh, OSS Chief William Donovan. And uh, I guess he was an insignificant advertising copywriter before the war, but Lansdale, quote, used Madison Avenue language to construct a squeaky clean Boy Scout image behind which he hid his own perverse delight in atrocity. And um, William Donovan had uh, offered Lansdale a transfer to an army posting in the Philippines. And it says... uh, Lansdale seized the opportunity to observe Kojima's torture as a means of creating an unassailable niche for himself in the New World Order. After two weeks of grisly torment, Kojima broke down and led Lansdale and Santa Romana to two over two dozen golden lily hiding places. With the information Lansdale provided, not only did his boss William Donovan win his battle with the new president, Harry Truman, over establishing a centralized American intel service, but he secured off-the-books funding equivalent to 15% of the total American cost for World War II. Uh, and according to the Seagraves, the Black Eagle Trust became embedded in the world financial system under the negotiating table of the Bretton Woods Conference in New Hampshire in 1944. 
when America's allies, bankrupted by four years of war, had no choice but to look on as the United States set about dollarizing the global economy. Britain, pre-war queen of world banking, was up to her ears in debt and the US uh, to the US and had been obliged to take the back seat in post-war economic planning as the price for a 30 billion war loan. Because of widespread suspicion, the British-backed Bank of International Sen- uh, Settlements in Zurich had been laundering Axis loot, Bretton Woods set up a new international clearinghouse, the International Monetary Fund, to act as the world's money changer. Backed by the U.S. government, gold was pegged at 35 an ounce, and all other currencies pegged to the dollar. Um, and uh, I guess that um, the United States officially held 60% of the world's official gold reserves at the time, um, a monopoly that somewhat belied its public insistence on free trade. And, uh, you know, allegedly the Sub Rosa Black Eagle Reserve um, would give it even more dominance. And in the post-war world, the Black Eagle funds would also be used to buy elections and manipulate foreign governments. Now, um, the they ran into a problem here. So this is just the theory they're tracking. They're trying to, like... I think answer some of your concerns like mm-hmm. uh, that Henry Stimson, uh, the I think it was the Treasury Secretary, uh, Stimson's brain trust um, made a persuasive case that if the existence of so much black gold were made public knowledge, the fixed price of 35 an ounce uh, would plummet since the U.S. dollar was linked to gold. And so so many and so many currencies throughout the world were linked to the dollar. The dollar would indeed, in the famously arrogant words of another U.S. Secretary of Treasury, John Con in the car with JFK, who figures so prominently and so egregiously in the story, became everybody's problem. The persuasive Lansdale, whose gift for dramatic exaggeration made him a popular guest on the Washington dinner circuit, promoted the black gold as an extra floor for the post-war economy that would coincidentally give Washington even more leverage in wresting world banking away from the Brits. Now, this is interesting. So we have a not just these Seagrave people, but according to Ray Klein's Iran-Contra testimony, between 1945 and 1947, the Japanese gold, under the direction of Robert Lovett, an expert on foreign exchange and currency controls who returned to Brown Brothers Harriman for two years after the war, was discreetly moved by ship to 176 banks in 42 countries, though much of it remained behind in the Philippines. The gold became sleeping bullion, meaning that it was at least initially earmarked and strictly limited in the uses that could be made of it. However, gold bearer certificates and other forms of derivatives could be given away as gifts or bribes to countries and individuals that cooperated with Washington's Cold War agenda without giving away the bullion itself. Beneficial trusts for statesmen and military and business leaders could be set up as well. By limiting the amount of gold that reached the market, those who controlled the Black Eagle Trust could hold far more than the official gold supply, keeping gold prices artificially high while using derivatives, a financial instrument intimately related to Sasakawa's past as a future speculator, as a clandestine slush fund. Ray Klein, part of the band of OSS brothers known as the Old China Hands, which included Lansdale and General John Singlab, was a key player in both the Black Eagle Trust and the Iran-Contra enterprise. He appears in in Lombardi's Iran-Contra drawing linked to Geomilitech DC, one of the conduits for Oliver North's scandalous adventure. And I guess uh, when he he was a Harvard guy who became a China hand, uh, started as OSS analyst, um, and apparently uh, when he was an OSS analyst in nationalist China, he acquired knowledge of the Golden Lily Horde, um, and he worked closely uh, as an analyst on Korea, um, which I which interestingly it says where much of the Japanese war loot came from, so. 
if anybody wants to know why the DPRK is mad, perhaps. Uh, anyways, um, they really don't like the Japanese. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, he, he, yeah, he worked closely with John Singlaub, CIA banker Paul Hellowell from the Castle Trust, and William Casey, who shared his interest in financial intelligence. Uh, from 1958 to 1962, when the first preparatory meetings in the establishment of the World Anti-Communist League were being held in Taipei, um, Ray Klein was elevated to CIA station chief of Taiwan, courtesy of Frank Wisner and his Office of Policy Coordination. In Taipei, Klein was responsible for clandestine operations throughout Southeast Asia and, moreover, had access to little scrutinized foreign aid counterpart funds sitting in a vault at the American embassy in Taipei that became the initial financing for the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, a collaboration between Chiang Kai-shek, the Republic of the Philippines, and the Republic of Korea, and Sasakawa's World Anti-Communist League, both channels for the Black Eagle Trust. It also says here that that John Singlaub, not only in his memoirs, uh, mentioned that Yamashita's gold was real. Um, well, John Singlaub, like, didn't he, wasn't he someone who, like, hunted for Yamashita's gold? Yes, I'm looking at the 1987 article in the New York Times, Mystery in Manila, Singlab's Quest, and um, yeah, he so, like, went on, like, literal... Yeah, so, like, Black Eagle Trust, why was he constantly doing treasure hunts for it? So that doesn't 100% add up. Well, and... I mean, uh, just to push back, like, uh, Fernand Marcos <laughs> okay. was, was allowed to be overthrown by, you know, under Reagan in 1986. This article is 1987, so he's going in the aftermath of... Ferdinand Marcos being overthrown. And as it said here, most of the gold, um, according most to them, the was left was left in the Philippines, which is why Marcos was able to live so lavishly and was kind of maybe the caretake, caretaker of it. But maybe after he was finally thrown out of power, perhaps he perhaps some of it went missing. I don't perhaps know. the Ray Klein stuff is uh you know, something, but I just wanna like see his actual like statement about the gold. Because I don't like just saying that the Seagraves said that he said. I mean, I don't. See I don't, why I don't think. That up. I, just I don't think it comes. It. It's well. It's, I think it says from. Uh, it might be from congressional testimony. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, the the only citation is of course from the Seagraves, which is like the source for all of this. But like, I just want to see the actual, you know, testimony. That is like a possible like compelling lead. Singlab seems like a little bit weird, but like anyway, like you know, the Yamashita's gold. I mean, maybe we just need to do a Yamashita's gold episode. Uh, we might need to get to black. the bottom of this because I feel um, like I, I, I feel like there's something maybe that there like that we're groping between, around. Uh, that there's. Is there a link between Yamashita's gold and the Oak Island gold? What was the Oak Island goal? Uh, it's um you know, basically, like, a Templar treasure that's, like, lost on Oak Island in Nova Scotia. Well, actually, it's unclear what the treasure no. might be, but, okay. Okay. All right. But, I mean, mm, uh, I mean, I would more, I, I would put not. in the field of plausibility, no on my conspiracy pyramid, I would put, uh, I would put Yamashita's gold lower okay, on the pyramid yeah. than Barry well, Templar gold. Well, <laughs> yeah, I would like, also be skeptical of that. Although, apparently, I'm looking up Oak I the Oak Island mystery right now, and apparently uh, theories about the artifacts on the island range from pirate treasure to Shakespearean manuscripts to possibly the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant with the Grail and the Ark having been buried there by the Knights Templar. So there's a range of different conspiracies, and there's also a curse. 
but anyway, uh, yeah, uh, not to ta- to taint the Yamashita's gold with with the that brush of uh, the <laughs> pirates, the Templar pirates. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the seek help pyramid. Um, I'm not. I'm like you know. I feel like we can we can table that. Like maybe. Yeah, we could probably like table. Maybe, I, I, but I, I think, think that it's for not. Ne- I think it warrants further. It's not necessary for all this to like make sense uh, or like to, I, I to work. Like Marcos is like super involved in like the the BCCI. His links to Harkin Energy like are through through yes. uh, you know William Quasha. Like that is legitimate. Like William Quasha obviously has a link to Marcos. Uh, but you know if you want to uh, if you want to go down uh, you know another conspiracy route that we've we've uncovered. Uh, I um, I noticed that. Um, Quasha, according to Wikipedia, uh, uh, the, the Wikipedia article for William H. Quasha, mm-hmm. he served as scoutmaster of Troop One American School. He joined the executive board of the Boy Scouts. No. Yep. And was awarded the Silver Tamara. So he received the Silver Buffalo with the Boy Scouts of America in 1947. Wow. Um, mm, and yep. I guess, yeah, Boy just Scouts, uh, in light of in light of what's in the what's been in the news this week. Um, Record um, record lawsuit liability for hmm. covering. Actually, it actually did say. Didn't we mention this in the other episode? It, maybe maybe we did during um, Contra Three that uh, all these other institutions that have sort of like ducked under the radar the last fifteen years as the Catholic Church has gotten. I mean, rightfully pummeled, but that you know these other groups are kind of probably had just as much abuse going on. So now we see that. Yeah, with, uh, I mean, the good old we Boy also Scouts. like. Gotta say, we called the Boy Scouts like thing. I mean, I guess it's kind of yeah, like you know. Right back to I guess if you three. really think about it, yeah. Well, Aquino's Boy Scout links. Uh, he, he cited his time in the Boy Scouts as why he wanted to go into the military. is very formative for his life. There's all sorts of sus Boy Scout links. Wasn't the like sort of the sus Antifa shooter guy in the Boy Scouts? There was like some picture of him in his Boy Scout uniform. Which uh, which shooter? Um, that's that guy who was like, uh, you know, I'm a hundred percent Antifa and then like had sort of mysterious oh, death. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure if he was a boy scout, but he was from um, the army, but, uh, yeah, I believe he, that he was also a boy scout, but I mean, I guess that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, a lot of people are boy scouts, but my point is that the boy scouts are the most successful organization of all time. Uh, and yeah. it goes back to the boy scouts. No, but, definitely. Yeah. Um, um I, I think, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think we, we could spin on even just in the, where we might have certain bones to pick with like certain sections, but I think actually like each chapter of this, now that I'm looking at it, like really does deserve kind of its own episode, like Castle Bank, like, uh, yeah, exactly. This is why I don't really like the second part of the book as much as the first part, because like, I feel like the Mark Lombardi's art itself, like what I thought the second half of the book is going to be is like discussion of the various artworks in depth. Uh, there's a little bit of that, not as much as I would like, in the other book that, uh, you know, uh, I read and, and, and I've mentioned, but like, this is mostly kind of like an index of different, like conspiracy theories, uh, that would, you know. that would sync up with things. in Yeah. His drawings. Yeah. yeah. Like, Which I know, mean, I, the, I, the don't, I don't think is there. Honestly, yeah, that's not so bad. Yeah. And they're like, they're, I, you know, they yeah. just cover BCCI, which is obviously a big, important bugbear for him. And like, but you know, yeah. And like, uh, yeah, but and that's, you know, there's, a. Uh, I mean, I mean, I would say, you know, almost like bad, you know, like John DeCamp's book perhaps does. uh, It it has a similar feel to it uh, as the second half of this book does, where it's just like blazing through making these connections and 
and, and, you know, like time to time, like hitting on things, but then you're also kind of going so fast that you're like, well, wait a minute. Like, you know, um, so it, it gets tough when you're, this is the kind of thing that maybe gives people like a uh, kind of cognitive overload when you're just throw. I mean, and, and I know I, I've spent enough time, like I've, I've, you know, I've blown enough hours, like reading into various things that I could notice that she was incorporating a lot of stuff from like, you know, Gary Webb's recording to like Daniel Hopsicker stuff about Barry seal and, uh, that like project hammer nine 11 conspiracy theory that was floating around online. Like she definitely did a lot of homework to stitch together a lot of these narratives. I don't think it has kind of the, um, like, I don't, I don't know if I would say that it's like absolutely sort of, uh, complete, but I, I think for maybe a lot of people, I think particularly maybe the sort of a curious, uh, you know, art aficionado, um, you know, in the bookstore who sees this book and buys it, but, you know, we consider themselves like, you know, laughing at like Elvis, uh, radio yes. shows, you know, that kind of person, um, the, the, uh, sort of, a you know, bespectacled slate columnist in Brooklyn or something who sees it mm-hmm. in a coffee shop. <laughs> like, like maybe this is a way, I mean, you still kind of have to be mm, up, have to be game for going on some wild rides in this half. Um, but I feel like it. Yeah. There's a it, lot there's, of, uh, yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that we didn't really even talk about that is like, you know, the, there's a lot of that. Va- he did a whole, uh, drawing about the Vatican and their like sus, uh, activities, uh, which I guess was oh for sure for him for sure which uh, is a whole nother a uh, vector of the kind of yeah the shadow economy Iran Contra uh, obviously yeah. Bill Casey it talks about how Bill Casey was a knight of Malta um, as was William Donovan and uh, they do pop in and out um, talks about like La- Edward Lansdale uh, creating uh, Operation Mongoose which was like a, you know uh, assassination program to kill Castro in the early yes. 60s uh, it says the old China hands you know, figured largely in the anti-Castro actions, which would kind of uh, be another convergence point. I don't know if yeah, this gets into... the uh, Vatican, uh, you know, according to British intelligence, uh, the Pope's bank was used to secretly finance uh, armed factions of the Irish Republican Army, which uh, is kind uh, of based... Uh, I'm okay Critical with that. support. Critical yes, support. They, uh, yeah. Yes, they also uh, funded uh, right-wing Catholic groups in Spain and Latin America, which maybe is less based, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, but yeah. uh, you know, to be to um, be expected. Um, um, yeah, but there's really the, and there are yeah, there's all these. Uh, they funded Lekwasa too, I guess. Uh, oh, they definitely funded Lekwasa. Um, that is in um, the Victory Book by Peter Schweitzer. Um, yeah, which uh, um, is kind of also it touches on some of the things these guys did of that was of like um not exactly like authorized but you know but they 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 even admit in that book quite openly that they yeah they were like pumping billions of dollars and giving them like secret radio equipment so that they could communicate with like the US embassy in Bonn Germany and and shit like that like they were and but you know they and the the catholic church was not fully on board with helping the CIA until a you know a crazy Bulgarian KGB asset uh, took a <laughs> shot at the Pope, uh, even though he was actually like a gray wolf uh, Turkish neo Nazi uh, who's like connected to uh, the Gladio uh, network um, in Turkey. Uh, so uh, that's a little sus, but you know perhaps they yeah. uh, psyoped the Pope into you know getting into bed with Bill Casey. Um, 
maybe. And of course these, yeah. And like Paul Marcinkus, uh, the Vatican bank, like all that stuff that we talked about in previous episodes, I think it's all, um, you know, I, I wouldn't put it out of the, the realm of the Catholic church to have maybe squirreled away some, some loose funds and treasures and such, uh, throughout world war two, though they might've been looted as well. I'm not really sure kind of how that shook out, but, um, they definitely seem to be into financial wizardry mm-hmm. to say the yeah. least. Um, but yeah, all these things could probably, um, you know, there's also the, uh, uh, it should bear mentioning, uh, soon to be, uh, Ex Cheeto in chief, uh, Donald J. Trump is mentioned in one uh, wow. pre- preliminary drawing that. of Mark Lombardi. Yes, yes, and actually, the the thing he's connected to, I think, pops up several times, which is Resorts International. And the, Lombardi actually, d- I mean, major props to him for kind of being into this in the 90s. Um, but if you look it up on LombardiNetworks.net, it's connected to uh, iOS to mid-1970, Lansky Banks, uh, Mary Carter Resort Study Front, uh, Paul Hellowell Castle Bank and Trust Mercantile, second version, related to Billy Mellon Hitchcock, Paradise Island, that's where the resort's casino was, uh, that used to be owned by... Um, I believe it used to be owned by Nazi Swedish industrialist Axel Wenner Gren, who um, went on to was a close friend of Hermann Goering, and then went on to build the Disneyland monorail um, after the cool. war. And um, yeah, <laughs> then that that got bought out by like the uh, allegedly Alan Dulles Meyer Lansky joint venture called Resorts International. That then after its uh, longtime chairman died in I want to say James Crosby in 1986. Uh, a hostile takeover bid was made by one hotshot businessman, Donald Trump. And he got controlling interest in this entire company, but then had to fight off a hostile takeover effort from Merv Griffin, the game show guy. Uh, (laughs) So they had a fight over it in 87 and 88. And then eventually uh, they split the company wherein Trump got to keep one of the casino, I think two of the casino projects in Atlantic City that were Resorts International properties, and then uh, Paradise Island uh, in the Bahamas. Uh, the original casino was owned by Merv Griffin, who I think had a very um, bad time with it. And uh, he eventually sold it just to, you know, maybe just do a little interlock action on myself right now on the fly. Um, because I discovered this years ago, mm, Sun International. Oh, it, worth mentioning that uh, Griffin's purchase of re- resorts in 1988 was financed with high interest junk bonds sold by Michael Milken, uh, who, you know, ended up going to jail after that and is now like a super plugged in uh, philanthropist guy who just gets to um, do whatever he wants. And um, cherry on top. Uh, he ran into bankruptcy, a lot of bad things happened, and he ended up selling uh, Paradise Island to Sun International, which is owned by Saul Kersner, who is a, a South African uh, business magnet who has uh, extreme mafia ties and was like a huge su- like a supporter and partner of the apartheid government. And um, there actually is an 80s uh, rock song called Sun City, led by Stephen Van Zandt, um, a.k.a. 
Silvio from The Sopranos, a.k.a. Bruce Springsteen's guitarist, um, that was like Rock Against Sun City, which was a resort Saul Kersner built that like upheld apartheid laws and like didn't let black people go to it. And, uh, you know, of all the kind of we are the world um, songs of the 80s, this one is like not not very cringy and kind of fun because this guy does sound like a like international crime connected uh, sort of fa- like fascist uh, gangster. Um, and uh, oh, yeah, Kersner was in Epstein's Black Book, naturally. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's where yeah, I was that's where that about- thread goes today. I was thinking about when we went, uh, when we, the first day that we started to really like conceptualize this podcast. And I think when we first came up with the name Subliminal Jihad, we went to the Met that day. Uh, mm-hmm. and like, uh, speaking of like the art world and like the connections here, like, uh, I think we went to like an exhibit. I forget on, even on what, what, like, uh, but it was, I think it was like a, it was, a, it wasn't in a prince of like a German prince or something. Oh yes. Right. Yeah. It was like some kind uh, of a boy yeah, king. king. Yeah. 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 It was something like that. I don't know if he was a boy like king. Maximilian. Or like was it Maximilian? Yeah. I think yeah. you might be right. I think, you yeah. might, I think it might've been emperor Maximilian, but the, the yes. exhibit was like, you know, funded by like some Epstein dude, Ronald uh, Lauder, and, who we talked about in episode two. And yeah. I remember this and I remember going, Hey, that's funny. Like Ronald Lauder, like finances exhibit. He's the, he's the guy that got Jeffrey Epstein, uh, his you know, his Austrian passport when he was ambassador <laughs> to Austria in 1986. Yeah. And, and a yes. girl like turn didn't a girl like turn around and say something. He's like, yeah, like, and she's like, thank you. I like that, uh, factoid or whatever, you know, I was, uh, I think she yeah. said I should do a tour of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> announcing everything. I mean, it was like, it was interesting, like in light of the, like co- the topic of the exhibit that like that guy, uh, you know, like this Holy Roman Emperor, like dude, like, uh, like some sketchy, like Habsburg. Um, yeah, they had like his suit of armor and everything. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah well, was, he, uh, he pops up everywhere. Um, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and you yeah. know, Estee Lauder, all those, all those, you know, all that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, there, um, <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, but, um, yeah, there, uh, there are definitely many, uh, yeah, sus, uh, sus connections, but, um, yeah, like, uh, I, uh, was gonna read what there is like a you know uh not to uh sell the second half of uh interlock uh by goldstone uh too short because i do actually like uh this quote that she picks out from a uh a review i guess of an earlier book about mark lombardi mm-hmm. um oh no i guess it's the it's i guess it's the review of global networks the book that i read from a little bit it's a review of that book uh that appeared in flashpoint magazine by carlo parcelli and Carlo Patelli, uh, she quotes him as saying, A criticism often leveled at conspiracy theorists is that there is not enough proof that the timelines and the narratives have gaps. There is an assumption, especially among mainstream journalists, although refuted by modern historiography, that the full and objective story is possible, and that therefore nothing can be true without a coherent narrative. Um, I feel like Goldstone kind of like uh, betrays like that principle, but she does do a good job of uh, like expressing it, which is that like, uh, you know, she quotes Barbara Tuchman also and says, uh, the historian discovers that truth is subjective and separate made up of little bits seen, experienced and recorded by different people. It's like a kaleidoscope. When the cylinder is shaking, the countless colored fragments form a new picture. Yet they're the same fragments that make a different picture a moment earlier. 
This is the problem inherent in the records left by actors in past events. The famous goal, V.S. Wirklich war, uh, how it really was, I guess I mangled that, but whatever, is never wholly within our grasp. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, she talks about how, like, Tukman, the historian, whose popularity was based on her ability to write narrative, substitutes picture for narrative. Lombardi, the artist who wanted to write narrative, used it to create pictures. He filled in the gaps in the records with the sheer cumulative volume of often circumstantial evidence, marshalling the heft of the myriad small and separate truths he uncovered to create what computer scientist David Epstein, uh, no relation, described as the strong rhythms of the flows of the money Lombardi depicted in his work. Those swelling visual rhythms convey an overwhelming sense of directionality without an obvious impetus, exactly the quandary of another social science, economics, in which, she quotes again, the general penchant to hide underground activities often precludes direct observation of their occurrence, necessitating the use of indirect measures. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then she goes on a little bit more about the Black Eagle Trust, but, uh, you know, like, uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not ruling it out. I'm not ruling it out. And uh, I really do love uh, the Iran-Contra drawing uh, that Lombardi did, um, which I think, you know, is the one that contains a lot of those references to some of the, the people like Klein um, and mm. uh, to uh, Singland. Um, and yeah, it's in a, it's a very, uh, you know, amazing, uh, image. Uh, yeah, I definitely recommend everyone look that up cause that was kind of like a, this very like spherical globe shape with a couple of protrusions coming out. Uh, that, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but, um, yeah. um, I yeah. think, you know, we're, we're coming up on three hours here. I think, uh, oh, three hours. you know, right. I think I, we can yeah. table the gold talk and, uh, and, and some of these, some of these threads, uh, in his drawings, uh, we can return to and give them their, their yeah. full due. I guess maybe the last thing before we get out of here, we didn't talk much about, uh, we didn't talk too much about his suspicious hanging, but yeah. like, what, what's our, I was looking at the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the verdict here? Because I mean, well, I do like, uh, the like speculation for one, like, you know, again, like I'm definitely partial to the idea that like he was killed, uh, you know, and that it wasn't suicide. I mean, a lot of his family members sort of believe that, um, or I guess, no, maybe not. Maybe I was getting him confused with Gary Caridor, who we talked about in another episode. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that his mother did uh, maintain continually the idea that he had not done so, while others brought in, uh, bought into the idea that he had. Uh, but this is an interesting thing that um, she uh, makes a note of. Uh, it's interesting, if not, you know, necess- I'm not saying that this is the truth, but uh, she writes, uh, Gulson, that is. Some in the art community like to believe that Mark's death was a form of performance, as in performance art, evidenced by the pointless spray of Tylenol PM on the floor of his studio, like one of his friend Fred Tomaselli's celestial star maps, and the much-contested bottle of champagne hanging next to him. Uh, yeah, he had, like, a bottle of champagne hanging next to him, even though apparently he didn't drink champagne. Anyway, uh, I like to think that Mark orchestrated the whole thing himself, Irv Pepper said. What he couldn't do in life, he did in death. Thing is, uh, thing you have to ask is, he, uh, if he would back off if the FBI really showed up, he'd be the first guy out of town. If you really want to draw attention to Mark's work, you have to die in some mysterious way, said his former dealer, Devin Golden. But it's not like Mark's death made it uh, happen for him. He was already there, already on the trajectory. Uh, so this, you know, she talks about how this has become his uh, 
art story, so to define his art story by his own death would have been Lombardi's ultimate signature, a flourish of advanced information that would overwrite any art criticism, the penultimate well-baited trap of an exhibition. Uh, penalt- I think she maybe she means ultimate. Uh, my favorite mm-hmm. thing when people think penultimate means super ultimate. Anyway, yeah, you're never going to, yeah, yeah, you're never going to prove he was murdered. Uh, Golden said, and you're never going to come up with a good reason for him killing himself. Oddly enough, there are those in the police force that agree. Artists do crazy things all the time, mused one. Maybe it was a form of performance art. Uh. It's an oddly sophisticated piece of art criticism out of the mouths of men who otherwise spend their time chasing drug dealers, but also oddly compelling. That's some weird writing from her here. If you know a fair amount of the, about the history of conceptual art, it's a little too neat. It nags at the brain, along with the image of the artist's slight, boyish body, groomed for a date, twisting to the jangling of a radio in his brightly lit, otherwise empty studio. Mm. Uh, yeah, no, it does. It, it it's almost terrifying to think about that the CIA could murder you, and that like if you're an artist, and then like if they just sprinkle around like some bullshit art. and make it yeah. look like it's a performance well, it's, art. Yeah, thing. it's quite chilling to contemplate, like because in a way, like they did create like a work of art if they were trying to make it look like a performance art. Oh it my was, god, like, you know, that was the ultimate artwork. They, they by out, you know CIA, yeah, or whatever. They out conceptual. Yeah. Like if you were going to write the a kind of a weird CA thriller about this, maybe like the agent tracking him is like an, kind of an aspiring artist in his own mind. <laughs> yes. Like, you yeah, know, this is like sure. his final masterpiece. He's been tracking Yeah, or Mark like, Lombardi you know, one years. of his rivals from grad school. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or something. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, um the, yeah, well, there's one other thing about like just forensically that I remember when I read this, I freaked out. Because, like, it sounded so ridiculously similar to what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. And um, this is about kind of like, uh, well, I'll just read this. Like, noted forensic pathologist Bernard Knight devotes an entire chapter of his definitive postgraduate textbook on the medico-legal autopsy to fatal pressure on the neck as, quote, one of the most complex and controversial areas of asphyxial deaths, as the mechanism is uncertain and the frequency of such deaths makes them a common problem for both forensic pathologists and jurists. One of Knight's main points, made at some length, is that it is easy and in fact commonplace to confuse and or conflate asphyxia with sudden cardiac arrest as the mechanism of death by hanging. Pressure on the baroreceptors, sensory neurons in the car- carotid artery that help regulate blood pressure, creates a cataclysmic nervous response variously called vagal inhibition, vagal shock, or reflex cardiac arrest, which stops the heart before any evidence of asphyxia sets in. It is relatively easy to produce. Knight reports a case in which a soldier at a dance playfully tweaked his partner's neck and was mortified to see her drop lifeless to the floor. Um, not nearly as mortified as she was, to be sure. Okay, th- we yeah. don't need to joke about that, um, uh, Patricia. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> presumably the soldier was not so clumsy as to administer either a jujitsu commando punch, in which the edge of the hand is brought forcibly to the side of the neck or the front of the larynx and stimulates a, a vagal response, or an arm lock, otherwise known as a chokehold or sleeper hold, which has been banned by a number of police forces because of the number of inadvertent fatalities it has caused by reflex cardiac arrest, especially in situations where a combative subject has been drinking alcohol, as Mark habitually did. Um, in, uh, let's see, and she quotes like a... A John Carré novel where they uh, oh right yeah basically she was talking about how yeah in a John Carré novel there's sort of this like Vulcan de- oh yeah like some dude yeah. comes to an opera and he like you know chokes a woman by like 
putting his arm around her. He, like, kills her without anyone yes. noticing by pretending to be, like, on a date with her. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, um, right. yeah, basically. Uh, like a Vulcan death grip type, like, pressure point it, thing, kind of. Exactly. Uh, um, and also, with no pressure at all, plastic bag suffocation, a method also favored by the Secret Services, uh, will also mm-hmm. induce a sudden cardiac arrest. And this is interesting. Knight points out that death by hanging is most often caused by reflex cardiac arrest from pressure on the carotid structures rather than the widely diagnosed cause of, of asphyxia when oxygen supply is severely reduced due to abnormal breathing. Um, the rub for the forensic pathologist is that the death by sudden Vagal inhibition is common. It is quote unusual to find anatomic confirmation of injury to these structures. The secret police artist assassin looking to commit a suicide is therefore left with a window, not to say transom of opportunity in covering up a death from sudden cardiac arrest induced by one of the less violent methods above with the evidence of hanging. The mark of the ligature, a major focus of pathology, can be easily reproduced by putting a rope around the body's neck and dragging it for a short distance across the floor, which makes the ligature mark on the neck move upward, considered evidence of hanging. It takes a combination of dedicated detective work and a determined and curious pathologist to figure out what Knight calls, quote, the precise interplay of different mechanisms which themselves appear only partially dependent on the completion of suspension and the location of the noose. I guess, you know, it says the 90th precinct in Williamsburg where he worked has gentrified considerably in the last 14 years, but at the time of his death, it had one of the highest homicide rates in the city. Its staff was chronically overworked. Um, Since Officer Hendricks and his partner, Detective Vulich, say today in the absence of blood, bruising to the throat, or other signs of struggle, they were not looking for a homicide. They did not check for displacement of dust on the sprinkler pipe or any other telltale signs that Lombardi's Lombardi's body had been moved. Neither the police nor the medical examiner established a time of death, which might have told them if Lombardi had died in another location. They did not interview any of his friends or neighbors. um, And... uh, yeah, and then there's uh, Hillary Maslin was like this socialite like girlfriend of his who right, was yeah. kind of sus and like told that the police was right away to be the reason why he killed himself because he was upset over his relationship with her. But people yeah, have but been dubious of that. Yeah, yeah. Other people said that he didn't even like her that much anymore. Like he had broken up with her. Yeah, and, right. Uh, yeah, and he, he was happy about it. Someone said like I'm looking for a better looking girlfriend or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in his personal life, he wasn't like the best guy. Uh, no, no, know, definitely no. not. Um, um, yeah. He had uh, a bit of that, um, like, psychogenics, even though maybe he was a boomer. Uh, but, yeah, there uh, was a know. lot of drinking and some, uh, you know, like, smacking around uh, that happened. He had some, like, real, you know, cr- uh, intense relationships uh, with Yes, women. yes. Uh, you know, uh, passionate artist. Passionate artist. Uh, Smo- also smoked a lot of marijuana, so, I mean. Oh, yeah. You know. Well, yeah, I he. Uh, yeah. Uh, Despite Just like it, in the you room, know. you know, that stuff will make you violent. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, uh, yeah, but, I guess uh, so. Yeah, he but, had a uh, half smoked joint on his, yeah, uh, on his table apparently when he killed himself. So, um, interesting, you know, that possibly made him do it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but uh, but yeah, so I mean, I would definitely put in the verdict of uh, yes, he was murdered because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm probably um, gonna put him in. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's I mean, too just neat, to play, as they say. Uh, yeah, just to play devil's advocate of uh, him not being murdered, it does seem like, you know, uh, 
he could have just become famous doing this and like nothing would have changed in the world you know uh i doubt that this would have like you know had any substantive impact uh or you know i question whether it would have maybe i'm wrong sometimes um, i wonder maybe, that like, about history about the world like yeah just because everyone who like w- you know at those inflection points have all been murdered uh, I mean, maybe that but, it, it yeah. is kind of like shifting the timeline. So it's like, you know, yeah. whereas like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Like the way things unfolded, they feel inevitable. But you had to like kill like both the Kennedys and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X uh, yeah. to like complete the uh, whatever you wanted to do to open up the space. And maybe for the art world, it was like, you know, Josh Harris, like, yeah, let him run wild. Uh, you yeah. know, let like he's not um, an existential threat to the program and it's hard to tell like would mark lombardi um i mean he he kind of had one thing that he did which was like these interlocks and he was doing more it's of also, them yeah, he's getting more popular that another a real suspicious thing is that it was just before 9 11 and like after and the election they were and like the, let's yeah. come look at these things you know to yeah. figure out how to investigate 9 11 um so yeah that that is very suspicious for sure um, absolutely and and the yeah. fact that yeah the bush family who uh yeah like they uh they i think we've covered they seem to have a certain uh, you know a track record of being pretty vindictive and come after people who yeah, come after them and mark lombardi was not shy about how he was like he was coming for poppy bush and you know i'm sure if he could have helped a journalist write up a scandalous report that would have tanked george w bush's election chances and by publishing the jackson stevens harkin energy thing in 1999 the way he did that was grist for the mill if there had been any kind of journalist that would have had the gumption to take it up um that who knows i mean it could have been president john mccain and then uh who's you know charles keating's also in the interlock so mccain's kind of connected it to this whole thing as well um but just i don't know like i have i really have no idea that um you know maybe somebody out there is thinking on this strategic level of like this artist this is too dangerous and you know i think they would have had you know one of them might have had had their own personal grudge against him for punching him yeah, at the uh, yeah, at the bread the bread festival or whatever that was. Yeah, um, maybe he was just too uppity and he had to go in a kind of twisted ritual involving Tylenol PM, uh, creating a star map on the floor, um, and you know a bottle of champagne and a half smoked joint. Yeah, it's chilling right, yeah, to consider. It, like Juicy J, he smoked a blunt of death. Um, he yeah yeah you know um but he did some very important work so i think he's gonna he he is in a way you know yeah i guess his agent did say that you know it shaped his artist story you know he wouldn't be the same figure if he were still yeah some envy some of his contemporaries really envy him for the notoriety his death brought him and uh yeah, and I mean, he's definitely, like, it's definitely the coolest way to be, like, an artist, I mean, in this day and age. Like, being, like, an artist is, especially a conceptual artist, like, everyone thinks, like, you have no talent mm-hmm. uh, because, like, it doesn't actually require, like, the, the like, the, a craft. lot of craft, I guess, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, like, uh, 
I feel like people like people are kind of inherently resentful of conceptual artists, whatever you want to say. Like obviously, conceptual artists do have some kind of uh, you know what, and like a lot of things in this world are grifts of some kind. So I'm not mm-hmm. saying that like the living that conceptual artists make is uh, is illegitimate or whatever, and that there isn't like you know good conceptual art. But like you know, certainly uh, a lot of people are of the opinion that uh, conceptual artists are all like sort of uh, grifters and hacks. Uh, and like you know don't even have any talent so i feel like being murdered by the government for like your provocative conceptual art definitely like you know is yeah the best you could hope for uh in terms of being cool uh in a career like yes um it's 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 either that or be an unwitting cia asset um yeah true doing culture war um with your yeah exactly yeah, uh, yeah, destroying all structures of meaning hyper masculine um, hemingway-esque <laughs> art and yeah um i think yep. we covered everything i don't know any last notes on interlock I don't, yeah uh, no we'll yeah, we'll come back yeah. to specific interlocks yeah, yeah, uh, at yeah, a later yeah. date We're, i think uh yeah, mark lombardi the, his art it's very good you know it's very uh, good he will be he will serve as one of the cartographers of subliminal jihad i think for a long time to come yeah for sure um yeah it's uh definitely you know i uh i'm interested in the uh the artist who uh some of the other artists who were mentioned as like influences on him uh and also uh the artist whose uh his suicide was compared to uh you know uh as a um you know like uh the celestial star maps or whatever uh is it rothko uh no not rothko Uh, someone uh much more obscure um fred tomaselli oh okay yeah i guess that was uh goldstone's like comparison but yeah you can see his art if you uh if you look online it's like a the pointless spray of his tylenol pm was compared to the celestial star maps of this guy and hmm. not as cool as uh tom lombardi but uh there's something yeah. he yeah. Has, does have this one picture of a very sus pointless owl uh that's like shooting spirals out of its owl <laughs> anyway yeah word <laughs> um, uh, yeah. N- yeah um don't trust the art world um or the bushes yeah so until next time, uh, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace. Did she make you cry?